Welcome back to Deep Focus, everyone. I'm here, Quaid, your host, with Nick, also your host. After a little bit of a break, we told you that we were going to bring you an episode on A Quiet Place Part 2. And so we watched it, and we thought about it. And so, <laughs> as you can see by the title of this episode, we are going to be talking about Blade Runner 2049 instead. Uh, now, that's very interesting, and so we'll explain why by quickly going over A Quiet Place 2, but essentially we're going to contrast with Blade Runner by talking about what makes a good sequel, but we're not just going to focus on that. Obviously, if we're going to talk about a great film like Blade Runner 2049, uh, then we want to talk about the film in its entirety. So why don't you go ahead and lead us into our sort of take on A Quiet Place Part 2, Nick, and also yeah. spoilers. So yeah, from this point on, we'll, we'll spoil <laughs> both movies, and we highly recommend that you at least watch Blade Runner 2049. Um, it's amazing. So, Yeah. Um, so with A Quiet Place 2, I mean, we just did an episode on A Quiet Place, if you haven't been with us for that. But um, we love A Quiet Place, and we think it's, uh, we think it's a masterpiece in horror. Um, and A Quiet Place 2, um, I feel like made... Uh, a lot of mistakes and um, main like chiefly, I would say that the mistakes were in that they tried to give old characters more screen time, um, treating it as if it was a kind of like a franchise sequel rather than, um, you know, telling a great story like the first one did. Um, mm -hmm. And um, if you've been with us since episode one, you know how we are on, you know, uh, if we don't like something, we don't really give thorough analysis on it we want to be like kind of quick about it and um you know uh also present a reason why we didn't like it and what they could have done to actually change that so you know we like to be constructive with our criticism not just tear the film apart yeah. um so um i think one of the major problems that that movie had was just that it uh you know uh one there was no reason to kind of like flash back to uh um what's his name uh john krasinski uh, the very beginning yeah. of the film yeah yeah um which like they should have uh they should have flashed back to cillian murphy absolutely right? that would have been the correct choice because this movie is about him and his like uh his journey yeah, that john krasinski's daughter exactly and that flashback sort of just served uh the purpose of introducing Cillian Murphy, but not even focusing on him and and just giving us like a taste of the horror action to come. You know, right. it wasn't like compared to the original flashback in the original film. Um, it's very lacking. Um, yeah. And, and one, also, yeah, good. Well, I would just like to say my overarching thing about it is it felt like an attempt to essentially repeat the first film. Um, mm -hmm in pretty much every single way they could uh and well keeping with the fact that you know john krasinski's dead now and everything as opposed right. to attempting to do something a little original and we talked extensively as you just said about how if they had focused focused this in on cillian murphy and maybe not even brought the original characters in until like the later half of the film or something mm -hmm. how that could have uh, made it a lot better frankly well yeah and, and and i think that would have been the fix right is that like mm. um even even the mother and son storyline were were was completely unnecessary for this film yep right um it it did 
I would say that like it did serve as juxtaposition that helped us garner what they were trying to say, which was I felt like it, it kind of had something to do with how, you know, the strength of the father passes on to the um um to his children, right? Yeah. Um but if that's the case, then Cillian Murphy's character was unnecessary. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so I, I would have said like, go with one or the other, you know, like I, I felt like they were kind of uh, maybe inspired a little bit by the last of us um, in terms of like that dynamic of what was going on between Cillian Murphy and um, this... the eldest daughter. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and you created kind of this like, Oh, they have to go on a journey together. You know, they have to like, you know, um, the mother is injured and the son's also injured. She says like, Oh, please, please go yeah. after her. And like, I felt like at that point we should have completely abandoned the mother and son. Right. Yeah. Like, but, but part of the issue is like, you can't even feel Cassilia Murphy has this emotional journey in the film, but it's hard to feel it because you only get exposition of the backstory. You know, you don't right, get right. to have felt, uh, his failure in protecting his family and therefore getting some form of redemption. Um, right. And well, so and think, in many ways they're trying to do a repeat of John Krasinski through him, uh, right. at least in function, if not form. And it just doesn't land as well. And I do want to say one important thing. I like the movie. I think it's very entertaining. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It's just in the shadow of a quiet place. The first one, um, it's a, it's disappointing to say the least. So, yeah, I think that it it was very well crafted and a lot of the artisans involved did a really good job, but I didn't really see John Krasinski shine in ter terms of like, you know, bringing unity to the film and like really, really just knocking a message out of the ballpark like he did with the first one. Yeah. You know, um, where like I I'd say that even if the first one didn't exist, I, I felt like this would have been a pretty middle of the road movie, you know, like a lot of the like obviously the like sound design and stuff just as good as the first one yes. right like that's still revolutionary and it would it would have been one of those films that we probably would have covered on this podcast saying like oh like you know this might have not done great in terms of <laughs> the insider of the message um but you know in terms of just Correct. craftsmanship and certain yeah like it's worth watching right um, mm -hmm. But since A Quiet Place, like you said, in the shadow of A Quiet Place 1, since A Quiet Place 1 exists, you know, there, there's no reason that you wouldn't watch A Quiet Place 1 for that over this one. Yeah. You know, and so our fix, which Quaid uh, covered a little bit, would have been, and we kind of agreed on this before, was would just have been to uh, start the movie uh, before the whole invasion with Cillian Murphy's character and then follow his journey throughout the film and then have the characters from the first movie join us about halfway through and then have the second half of the movie be about, you know, his journey with this, uh, this girl who's actually not his family. Yeah. Right? His redemption. Yeah. Right. Cause the first one, and, and like, I think that does have a very last of us feel. And like, I think if you look at the last of us, they, what they started with was Joel losing his daughter. Yeah. Right. Exactly what we're saying that they should have done with Cillian Murphy. Right. Um, because you need that in order to feel his like pain and the reason for his distance. Right. Um, mm -hmm. because like, like, yeah, we can infer it, but it, it's not the same as like going through and experiencing it, you know? Yeah. So basically, uh, like and that's, I, I that's what carried 
the first film, you know, that emotional weight uh, yeah. was so strong. You were so in it. Um, and, you know, that coupled with the fantastic tension they were able to create with the craftsmanship just made it a great experience. And here it's, it seems like they're phoning it in to a degree. Uh, and when it comes to the emotional elements, like they're just sort of like, oh, it worked the first time and maybe not exactly yeah. understanding how well, which well it I understand. the first time or how they did it. So, See, I think it, I think the problem might actually stem from um, uh, TV, right? Because TV does this where it like it, it pulls the characters because they know that that's what the audience is attached to. And like, yeah. you know, where in this, I feel like they shouldn't have been afraid to make the characters that were main characters, side characters. Right. Yeah. Um, like, and, and for John Krasinski to take no screen time at all would have been, you know, I, I think that personally would have been the right choice because then you're putting story first. You're not putting production first. You're not saying like, Oh, these actors had screen time in the first one. So they get just as much screen time in the second one. Yeah. You know, um, and I, I understand the like the desire to do that, you know, but you always like as a director, you always have to put the story first every single time, you know, and it, th despite who you might piss off, you know, making the best story is the only thing that matters. Which sort right. of uh, brings us into the transition here. Yeah. Here, uh, let's actually which I let's would actually... like you to voice out. Yeah. So the the transition that we kind of want to make into Blade Runner here is actually talking about what actually makes a good sequel, right? Because like we we like to talk about the insight in films and like if you have a movie like A Quiet Place 2 where the insight is so similar to the first um, to the first one, it, it feels more of a repeat than a sequel, right? So what we kind of um, what we kind of decided on was that a good sequel builds on its predecessor's insight right it it, yeah. it it brings something new to the discussion right so when you have when you have a film that is about you know a father sacrificing himself for his children right and yeah you ha you like at the end of the film we already see his strength like pass on to all of them right like they're able to accomplish more because of his sacrifice. Right. And like, yeah, we already saw that in the first film. And like, I, f I felt like we spent a lot of time rehashing old ground in, this, in the second film. And like, that's not what Blade Runner does. Right. Um, and Blade Runner is the perfect example of a sequel done incredibly. Right. Yes. And like, personally, I think just as a standalone film, it's better than the original, but it's not, it's not even about a competition with the original because it, it it brings new light to the original. And that's why it's such a good sequel, right? It, it builds on what the original was trying to say. Yeah. Right. And I would uh, like to step yeah. in real fast and uh, preemptively uh, say that, of course, there might be people out there saying, well, what about like a trilogy or something? I would even go as far to say, even within a trilogy, this sort of applies, uh, frankly. So... I think yeah. this and, is very important. I think sometimes though, if there's a series, like it might be that um it might be that the last one is what ties everything together. So it's like one long story split between three movies. Yeah, they're building it up um, as a hierarchy, but even then you're still trying to do the exact same thing where you're trying to, you know, you don't want to 
I I like a great trilogies like the Lord of the Rings or uh, let's say Nolan's Batman series. And I do sure. see like each film leaping forward in the same way we're talking about here with definitely. I would say Nolan's Batman is a lot more that way than um, than Lord of the Rings. Like I feel like Lord of the Rings definitely is its own one large story, which is why yeah. I think the best way to watch it is all all three back to back extended <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um but nolan's nolan's batman trilogy like they're so like philosophically rich right and like um it it's all about like different types of justice and what's you know what's really right and wrong um yeah. in terms of like how you how you dish it out right um and like the first one kind of being between um you know the, the ends justify the means and batman being the other side right yeah um and then the second one introducing like because because batman wins out in that at the end right um not yeah. just you know with his fists but also philosophically right um and in the second one you introduce just like pure evil and what that looks like in the face yeah. of batman um Chaos and actually and yeah it, well it's actually interesting because they they challenge the insight from the first film with the Joker, yeah. right? And what we actually end up getting at the end is that the Joker's right, right? And that like Batman is a hypocrite. Yeah, to right? break your one and role. It's yeah, so ama- yeah, it's so amazing, yeah. right? <laughs> um, which is interesting because we don't usually see the hero be wrong at the end. But right? that's a perfect um, example right there of exactly what you're talking about, which is the sequels. Yeah readdressing the insight the message of the first film and taking it further and and broader context with it yeah yeah and uh, we'll get into the insight for um blade runner when we start talking about that but um yeah uh but we'll we'll get to that eventually um but just in terms of a quiet place um you know it it just wasn't um it wasn't the sequel we were hoping for you know we were were hoping for kind of like an expanding of the world and an yeah. expanding of the ideas and like a building on top of the ideas that came from the first film. And yeah. I think what we got was um, kind of a, a, sort a film of like that poor remake. Almost. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it, it was, it was, it was wandering around just like not really um, like, I, I felt like half of the film didn't actually need to be there. And then we were also missing half of the story that we did want to see. Yep. Right. And, um, I can't say why that is. I'm, I'm assuming that it has something to just do with, um, you know, feeling like actors are owed screen time in some way. Um, or it could be the TV mentality of, you know, bringing characters back because that's what people like. Um, well, we are providing a, a positive way, you know, constructive criticism, as you're saying. But really, frankly, they could have taken it a widely different direction with like no Cillian Murphy whatsoever. Um, yeah. Totally. And it could have been better. You know what I mean? We're just trying to look at yeah. what elements they gave us and how we might be able to rearrange those in some way to make it right. Better. And I think, um, I think in terms of constructive criticism, it's always, always, always the most important thing to try to help whoever's creating what, what, whatever they're creating, um, do what they're trying to do. Yeah. Right. So like when, when I get a script doctor, for example, I'm not going to sit there and say like, Oh, you should go in a totally different direction. Right. Like, my my job there is to figure out what this writer's trying to say and then like help them say it better. Yeah. Right. It's it's and that's why we kind of are uh honing in on Cillian Murphy here as a character just because like 
that seems to be a very um, important part. And he gave him these like emotional breakthrough moments at the end of the film. It which, seems like the emotional weight of the film relies upon him. So, and that's right, a very right. important, especially in the context of the first film, because that's what made it so good. So, right. And, and like, I would say that his character is like expositorily weak. Right. Yeah. Um, where like, we didn't get enough time with him to have these emotional breakthrough moments have weight at the end of the film. Um, so like I, I could I could empathize with it because of experiences that I've had, but there was nothing in that in the film itself um, that um, gave that or like gave me that emotional weight, which I think is super important. And I think actually that's a great jumping point for us to get into Blade Runner because Denny Villeneuve is someone who completely his his films are completely self-contained, right? Like everything that you need to understand his films are in within his films. Right. Um, yeah. He puts in like little details and things that can like act as clues and hints um, that can point you in the right direction, you know? Um, but like everything that you, that you need to understand his film is given to you in his film, usually during the exposition, like expository period. Yeah. Right. Um, which is amazing. And it's, it's always just enough, right? It's just enough. And it, it, uh, feels kind of like a puzzle because, you know, you have, you, you're only given just enough pieces. Like there is not a shred of fat anywhere on Denny Villeneuve's films. Yeah. Right. Like, like he, he makes use of every single second. And, um, like when you have something like Blade Runner that gets into such, such intense, um, uh kind of like philosophical arguments right and just just so we don't have to dance around it i would say that this um the first film right ridley scott's blade runner um amazing amazing film right um it is um essentially about uh what was it nietzsche's i live there for i am yeah that's nietzsche's quote yeah um so you know, a lot a lot of people on the internet have arguments about like whether Deckard is a human or a replicant. And I think the whole point at the end is that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Um that he knows what's real, right? Yeah, it's same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um and it, it's similar to what Nolan did with Inception. You know, like everybody's talking about whether it was a dream or not at the end. And the whole point of that moment is that it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Right. Um and that's why, like, whenever I whenever I talk to people about Blade Runner and, like, they <laughs> the first thing they come at me with is, like, oh, do you think Deckard was a human or do you think he was a rebel? I'm like, you didn't get the movie, did you? <laughs> that's, a, you know? that's a powerful technique as well because a lot of times me and you especially have dogged on, not that I'm against it, but dogged on having a question as the insight. But that's a way of using the question not as the actual insight because you have the actual insight, but to provoke the insight in the audience. Right. Um, right. So it's pretty, it's pretty neat. So, yeah, it is. And, and it's, it's a, it's so powerful too, when you pull it off. Um, and I, I think in the first Blade Runner, like the whole, like a uh, tears in the rain monologue is, is the whole. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the catalyst for him realizing that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Um, and attack ships off of Orion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I, I've I seen things you people wouldn't believe. Man, yeah, the amount so, of times 
that actors have come in to use that as their monologue is yeah <laughs> at auditions uh it's i mean if they can pull it off go for it but um i feel like it requires a little bit of context i just feel bad for actors man <laughs> honestly like what can you do you're gonna yeah, like, pick your favorite monologue out of all these amazing movies you know that's true that's and true. they're like um, what else can you do though it's like you're <laughs> you're shooting yourself either way you either do something of your own writing which probably sucks because we all suck and then yeah. or you try to attempt greatness that's already been done and you have to be compared <laughs> to it you know it's own well see I, I think i think the problem with choosing that for an audition is like what if they haven't seen blade runner this like, <laughs> there's no context in that monologue at all you know yeah. um and like it's fine when i've seen it because i you know because i've seen the, the film but um uh before we kind of get into Blade Runner 2049, though, the, the first film uh, was a production nightmare, right? There there are yeah. several different cuts. It's one of those I, legendary. I think, yeah, I, I think there's like seven cuts of this film. I I could be wrong with the number. There, well, but it's let me let me just say something about Ridley Scott initially. Um, yeah, he is on one end of a spectrum uh, when it comes to filmmakers. Uh, and that spectrum is filmmakers who are willing to completely talk about everything uh, in their movie and not withhold any information whatsoever. So literally just give away all of the information, all the insight right, right. without people having to work for it. And is completely willing to recut his shit a million times in order to <laughs> continue uh, towards his goal. And also right. in terms of dealing with the politics of the studio. Uh, so right. like other filmmakers that might be on the other end of the spectrum, someone like David Lynch, or like even Nolan's closer to the other end of the spectrum where he doesn't entertain some questions that are, cause otherwise he's like, what's the point of making the film? If I'm I, I feel like Dylan moves that way too. No. Um, he, yeah. Like he, on the other end of the spectrum though, not with, uh, yeah, not yeah, with, not with Scott. Ridley Scott. Yeah. With, yeah exactly. with, like he, he doesn't like to talk about what his film's actually about. Exactly. Um, so he, in contrast, um, right. so that's important where I just feel like, some of those cuts are just Ridley Scott being Ridley Scott because he does that with practically every film. But you For are sure. right. This was a this is a nightmare production, and he definitely had to make a lot of compromises with the yeah. The so the the two cuts I've seen are um, the I think the original theatrical cut with uh, the uh, noir uh, detective voiceover from Harrison Ford, where you can obviously tell that he doesn't want to do it, um, and then the final cut, which is the actual director's cut, um, but. A lot of the cuts also weren't made by Ridley Scott. Um, yeah. Like a lot of them were made by the production company. And That's I think true. even even the director's cut had nothing to do with Ridley Scott. I could be wrong about that, but. Yeah, um, you're right. Like his his ultimate cut is either called the ultimate cut or the final cut, right? So it's the final cut. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the final cut is the last cut ever made of Blade Runner. And it, it, that is Ridley Scott's director's cut. So if, if you want to go watch the original and you haven't seen it. I would very much recommend um, watching uh, that film. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of those movies where you could just watch all of them if you like it that much. You know, yeah, <laughs> if you like it that much, fair. you could just watch all of them. Um, so. Which um, that, that movie was really weird to me. Um, in the final cut, especially, uh, he almost u didn't use like any wide shots, which made it made it feel very surreal. Um yeah and, it's a it's an experience that's definitely yeah. why i came away with that film um it's definitely more of an experiential um um feeling while watching it as opposed to what you normally get with a story yeah and so i believe ridley scott lots did of ambience. say 
that Deckard um, is a replicant and Harrison Ford said that he's a human. So <laughs> yeah, Ridley Scott there's still is, like a uh, lot of ambiguity. Um, yeah, but Harrison Ford has to come back on that now because now he's in a sequel where he's a replicant. So well, actually we don't know that because they still keep it uh, in this one. They still keep it ambiguous. Um, you think so? I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. I think they made it ambiguous. I um, think he's referred to as a replicant even sort of by himself by a lot of people in um, this movie yeah i think uh when oh fuck what's his name uh our, our oligarch yeah, yeah wallace. wallace yeah um i think he refers to him no so he's being... asking a question when he's doing that yeah right so also he, he... when he deals with k he's sort of like your real name uh i think he's invested in that himself he seems to right. be. I, I think he's under the impression that he thinks that he might be one, right? But I think I think Denny Villeneuve had enough foresight to realize that like it's important to keep the ambiguity there, in order to preserve the, uh, the meaning behind the first film, right? Well, he so, also says to him like, "You were made for each other." No, that was a you question. Know? So that's that's what I was talking about. Where Wallace was, um. Wallace was unsure of whether he was a replicant or not. And he was, he was asking him if, um, if he believes that he was programmed. Right. So it was, it was kind of a, it was kind of a throwback to the first film. And like, I mean, Harrison's Ford response was amazing. Right. Where there was that like 15 second shot with, with like seven seconds on either side of the line, you know, of the line being, um, I know what's real right which is which that scene like perfect in my opinion perfectly encapsulates the first film um but yeah no um when when wallace was walking around him saying all that he he was uh proposing all these things as a uh as a potential um you know um saying that could it have been this or could it have been this you know true love or mathematics or whatever the line is right um so we still don't actually know if uh, if Deckard is a replicant at the end of this. Um, I guess I see what you're saying, but I generally just take Scott's word that he's a replicant because you know Scott has the the final say, so to so to speak. Sure, and, sure. Uh, it does seem to be like, well, you're right that there is room that Villeneuve is giving it. All the pressure seems to be that he is one, even though it's not. You're right; it's never directly said. So um yeah and and i think it's it's left ambiguous on purpose for Villeneuve. but i also think that even if he is one you know the point is that he doesn't know if he is one right and that's why that's why there's that cheeky little line in there when like he asks if the dog is real and he says um i don't know (laughs) like he, he just doesn't care if things are replicants or not right yeah um so uh yeah anyways so the first film being about this whole like you know uh like i i think therefore i am kind of thing right where or i feel that i live I therefore i, I am. live yeah who was i yeah, feel yeah. therefore i am i feel i don't i don't yeah. know if that was anybody um i think you're i think i live therefore i am is is nietzsche and i think therefore i am is descartes and okay, okay. the play on the words from nietzsche is you know sort of a refutation of descartes saying i think therefore right 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 so um i i would say i would say that it's, uh, it's I, it I means the same I thing am. i feel therefore right, right. i am is means right. the same thing as i uh 
I live, therefore I am. So right. So like that's essentially what Blade Runner is about, right? And to build on top of that, um, Denny Villeneuve gets into the matter of the soul or what it means to be human. Yeah. Right. Um, and we'll get more into that when we talk about the insight. But um, I think one thing that he did brilliantly in this film is uh, that that is that is essentially the natural progression of the argument, right? Because like um, just existing, just knowing that you're real, right, is much different from like knowing that you mean something or you know knowing that you have a soul essentially right and we get into this a lot in this film um and every the reason why i feel like this has to be the insight is that every single character in the film has a relationship with this uh with this concept yeah right um and and to uh just real fast to clarify uh we're making the point here jumping off that the original Blade Runner, as Nick has laid out, we have the insight at the end that it doesn't matter if he's a replicant or not. And yeah. so what Villain is doing here and what we're saying is sort of the secret ingredient of most great sequels is he's expanding on that insight. So I right. just want to make that clear because we sort of talked in the middle a lot about whether or not sure, sure. was a replicant. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but essentially when when this when the second film starts and you can watch the second film as a standalone film like it it explains its own insight perfectly right um you don't have to watch the first one if you watch the first one it only augments the experience yeah right um you can watch them in any order right actually yeah you could watch the second one and then the first one it doesn't actually matter um yeah but um Essentially, like every, like like I was saying, every character has a relationship with this, and like uh, Denny Villeneuve uh, does an excellent job at using sci-fi and fantasy, in my opinion, because um, and and this this really touches on why I believe sci-fi and fantasy are so powerful um, as t- storytelling tools is that it allows us to explore um, explore parts of humanity that would take a lot longer in um, a lot longer to get to in terms of being able to prove it uh, with a um, realistic, realistic present day drama. Right. Um, Because yeah, you could get to the point that you got to in, uh, in Blade Runner, right. Maybe in like 10 seasons of a TV show, but like all you need for a sci-fi is for you to say this, this person is a synthetic human. They were designed, they weren't born. Right. Like, and and that that allows you to jump past a lot of stuff using a sci-fi element, right? That you would have otherwise had to prove, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is um, just something that's so brilliant about fi- sci-fi and fantasy done well, right? Is that you can use it to explore parts of humanity that you would you would have otherwise not been able to, or would have otherwise taken a long time, yep. right? Um, and when you watch a film like Blade Runner, that's that becomes so profoundly clear because like, I mean, you watch this on a first watch and like you totally feel what it's trying to say, but you have no idea how to articulate it, you know, and yeah. like it's it's just beautiful at the end. And honestly, this it should is, be the goal of any great film, frankly, because you're yeah. supposed to feel it, you know, like the language, the words you put in it can never truly do it 100 percent justice. So, right. And I, I saw this film, um, I think five or so times in theaters maybe four it's crazy. um i think I but think i saw it once with you times um 
Yeah. And then I saw, and we talked for like three hours afterwards and I, I finally figured out the insight, um, watching it with, um, um, my friend who's an artist, uh, who I'm actually making a graphic novel with right now, but, um, damn really uh, cuz i'm doing that shit too yeah <laughs> uh, but like we went to uh we went to see this together and we talked about it for probably twice as long as we watched the movie afterwards and um i i mean him kind of getting into like the imagery of certain things really helped me uh kind of understand uh the film and it was really the tying of like the temper kind of this temporariness and temporariness in the beauty of snow Right. Um, comparing that to the whole tears in the rain monologue um, is yeah. what allowed us to finally like crack the code, <laughs> you know, which we will get into. Um, but I think um, uh, so we, we already kind of discussed that it's kind of about uh, the soul. Right. And what it means to have a yeah. soul. And um, what I was trying to get to was just that Denny Villeneuve does this amazing thing that uh, in that he uses the sci-fi elements to get kind of like a jump start um, in what he's trying to say, but also um, he he likes to disprove things, right? Which I think is is the way to do it, right? Is to have essentially um, the arguments that people would believe about this, and then disprove those those things, right? Sure. Um, because like you only need to disprove something once for for it to be false, right? Whereas like you have to prove it a million different ways to try to like prove that it's right. Right. So how did Denny Villeneuve tries to bring his insights to fruition? I believe is that he, he brings up all the philosophical points around what he's trying to say and disproves everything, but the one that's correct. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is brilliant. And that's the way that uh, Nolan did it with the dark, with uh, the dark Knight and, um, and Batman, right. he, kind of created a proof in the first one and then he disproved it in the second one right um and then that allowed room for the truth to come through right where uh like batman did end up being a hypocrite right yeah um so with with blade runner you know i'm kind of nervous to do this episode just because there's so much packed into this uh, it's it, it is a dense movie and um like there's like we said there's not a second wasted like denny villeneuve is so so particular about everything that he's doing so how yeah. we're going to break this up is i think it's important to kind of talk generally about what the insight is um we'll go through exactly what we think denny villeneuve is trying to say later but i think we should first kind of just start with like the technique and the craftsmanship of the film because um it is it is brilliant like this is this is a contender at least for the best film of like this new century for me, you know? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, when we uh, made our best of the decade list, we each had it on there and it was pretty high for both of us. So yeah. And it's just like the craftsmanship involved in this film and how everything's put together and how intense of an insight, how complex of an insight he's like delivered forth with like such ease is just um, astounding right like it's it's so so brilliant and I, I think that it does kind of suck that this came out in the age of the internet because like if this if this had 10 years to be talked about among like you know film lovers and critics um and then people came to a consensus on how good it was like it would be 100 percent right up there with the original uh Blade oh Man. yeah you know but it's but it's not because you know you have a bunch of 
critics being like oh yeah it's just too slow it's too long like you know it's <laughs> it's like what do you mean too long it's like it's yeah. it's so dense like if it was shorter we'd be missing stuff right yeah um absolutely. and it, it's it's purely they're just coming at it from an entertainment value perspective where they're like you know i had to pee it you know it's stupid right <laughs> like um but um as far as uh the people involved in this go um we have obviously Del- denny villeneuve at the helm um we have the great uh roger deakins behind the camera and we actually have hans zimmer scoring um which is just a brilliant combo and uh if you don't know obviously i, I hope people know hans zimmer but he does all the nolan movies yeah. <laughs> and uh he was also working stuff. with uh with uh benjamin walfish as okay. well um he's also credited yeah and then and also can i also point out that we have joe walker as the editor who is fucking amazing he's done uh, arrival sicario um mm. he's also uh steve mcqueen uh so hunger oh, okay. shame widows 12 years a slave this did like Harry Brown. If anyone's seen that movie, that's a really fun movie. So this guy's fucking, it's just like amazing talent everywhere. Yeah. And um, then um, writers being uh, Hampton uh, Fancher and Michael Green. Yeah. Hampton Fancher being the writer of the original. Yep. And Michael uh, Green. Um, I think he did. Uh, I think he, he was one of the producers on Heroes. Oh, let me check. Um he doesn't have any producer credits on Letterboxd. Michael Green? Oh, sorry. Michael Green. I thought you were talking yeah. about Hampton. Oh, no. no. Um, well, maybe. I wouldn't see it on Letterboxd because Letterboxd only has films. So okay. I wish they had shows. <laughs> that, that really fucking sucks. But just a, a note, he's also written Alien Covenant, so okay. which I love. Um, I wonder if he's uh, close to Ridley Scott at all. Well, I, I bet um, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of like Scott's people involved in this Blade Runner film. So okay. he might be like his son directed some like short films for it. Um, OK. Yeah. Um, yeah. But essentially what we kind of want to talk about is each of these people and what they brought to the film and like why they did amazing. And we kind of covered Denny Villeneuve a little bit and I want to cover him in more detail. But let's actually talk about Roger Deakins for a while. Um, just because oh. visually this film is stunning. Um, and yeah. Roger Deakins is a, uh, a storyteller at heart. And, um, you know, like I, 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 it's kind of, to me, it's kind of an understatement to call his cinematography pretty, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it's profound, right? It, it actually, it actually is telling the story, um, not just like, um, being, uh you know a, a, a lens at which you see the story through it, it's one of the storytellers right yeah um and he, they do just such an amazing job at like capturing emotion and stuff through through the framing and the lighting that like um you could watch this movie on mute and still garner so much from it right um and vice versa too. Like you, like you could listen to the soundtrack and the sound design, which sound design is also amazing, by the way. Um, oh yeah, big time. Um, 
and also get the story from there. And the thing that we always talk about unity from the director, right? Um, Denny Villeneuve just ties everything together, like brings the vision to make sure that the vision from everything points in one singular direction. And like, so you have all, all the power of Roger Deakin cinematography, all the power of Hans Zimmer's score, all the sound design and all the actors' performances, just all hyper-focused on one vision. And that's just, you know, so incredible to watch. Oh, yeah. Um, So maybe we should maybe we should go what's your what was your favorite shot in the film i mean or just most recognizable favorite shot it might be generic but uh, when he's walking off into the gr- the gradient the gradient oh, yeah. orange, that's a beautiful <laughs> yeah, yeah. fucking shot uh, i know that's probably and then also the meme shot that a lot of people put on memes where he's interacting with um, joy but she's the the sort of like prostitute the big mm-hmm. pink you know hologram yeah um yeah right after he gets approached by the revolutionaries. Right. So that there's a two beautiful shots there, both like yeah. the far away wide one and the one that's up close on his face. Right. Um, I think my favorite is probably uh, there's, there's one kind of towards the end when he's saving uh, Deckard from, from. Uh, oh yeah. The water shit is so yeah. beautiful. <laughs> um, and there's, th- there's one that's like a bird's eye view and you're watching them trying to like pull each other up while they're getting knocked over by these waves in the dark. And I'm like, this is just so encapsulating of everything that this movie is. Yeah. Deacons, you know? man, he really knows how to use darkness without making it like noir, you know? Right. Um, right. That's something also you see in prisoners. Another film he shot with, Denny Villeneuve is they have night scenes in there, but yet they don't seem like night scenes <laughs> like every other movie right. would have. Them. <laughs> he has this a beautiful way of shooting in the darkness. Yeah, and I, I do like that. Sometimes he's not even like worried about lighting an actor's face, you know. Which like yeah. when you when you think about most DPs, like they would be appalled by the idea of not lighting the actor's face, you know. But there well, are there it, are several scenes in this film where like the actor's face is in complete darkness, right? Like you cannot see them at all and it's not like oh they're trying to hide the actor they're trying to hide their identity like like it, it is we know who this is they're just having like they're, they're, he's trying to create a different emotion right um he's trying to maybe like either create a question of like what you um like what this person feels or you know literally trying to like uh um what was the one yeah. that i was thinking of that uh th- Oh, like at the very beginning when um when he goes into Sapper's house, right? And like you have these two oh, yeah. windows that are backlighting both characters, right? Yeah, this and is a dark it, environment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and your eyes are just completely drawn to... And it, I think it's because like what, what he's trying to show is like um, the tenseness of the situation at hand, right? Not Not so mm. much like... Oh, who, we're not trying to introduce the characters yet. He's just trying to introduce the situation, right? Yeah, you know, you watch some of the behind the scenes of Roger Deakins working, and you do see um, sort of more freedom of movement. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw once where he's just running around with a ring light on the camera <laughs> and, yeah. and nothing else, you know. And this is like a you know multi tens of millions dollar production. And I right. heard him once. I think it was on unbreakable which she shot for angelina jolie talking about painting with light and 
so to how in many ways he'll just throw out the whole three-point lighting system that like 90 percent of people use and he's just you know uses one or two lights and it you know it's inspiring frankly because i feel like it that would be a better way for young filmmakers to learn about it rather than the kind of almost soul crushing (laughs) way of learning about it which made me sort of ignore it and frankly just rely on my dp and feelings and ideas and walking up to lights and fucking with them uh which i feel like is a way better way of doing it and is in somewhat the spirit of how deacons does it even though i know he's a master and knows it all anyways so well and and i think that that's what we see in deacons is um if you've been listening to the other episodes like we've been talking about knowing your fundamentals right and that being super important and i think what we see in deacons is just someone who has mastered the fundamentals to a point where like he doesn't he doesn't need any tips and tricks right like he just like what he feels comes out on the screen and you can see it yeah right um and i think that that's just absolutely amazing and he he is without a doubt one of the best uh uh cinematographers out there um in the world mm-hmm. right uh probably of all history <laughs> like he's oh no just, absolutely he's brilliant um he finally but, got an oscar right didn't he, did like, he? <laughs> win one like a year or two ago maybe yeah. i don't know who cares Either about way. that man <laughs> i i agree yeah. but like he out of people to have one you know you better yeah. have one otherwise yeah, it yeah. really doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> um let's see uh we have also i want to point out that ridley scott is producing on this so that's probably why we do have a lot of scott people on that okay on the production um which is good i mean i I, i'd hope that this film had this blessing because it's oh yeah absolutely brilliant and you can tell i i think harrison ford's one of those actors too where you can tell if he thinks the script's good or not (laughs) because when he does it for the money right right because he does do a lot of stuff for the money and like he you can tell that he's just phoning it in when he does and like his his performance in this was 135 percent uh there you know like he he i think i mean the acting all across the board is fucking phenomenal in this film you know but i'd say that he in particular uh, also ryan gosling just had incredible incredible performances um I think I think actually one of the actors who is um, understated a lot in this film is the one who played Love. Oh um, yeah, she name? had some really good scenes as well. Um, I don't know what what was her name. No, um, Sylvia. I mean, there's that great scene where she has to um, watch our our man, our boy, uh, our oligarch, our Jared Leto. Uh, mm-hmm you know, eviscerate one of her kind. And mm-hmm. she does this emotional balancing act because yeah. he's also <laughs> observing her at some point later on. Right. Uh, she does it brilliantly. And that also pertains, that that scene pertains to the insight. So, mm-hmm. as they all do, really, but in a, in a big way. Yeah. Um. So, let's, let's see. Um, Hans Zimmer um coming into this score i mean this score is very um much more in like the thin red line vein of um han zimmer scores than like his newer stuff um where like i i feel like there's not really a lot of um like melody in these 
you know it's a lot no, more I agree. atmospheric um i feel like uh if i'll just say it real fast i feel like they took the original score and they almost made it a, a little bit more like nasty you know what i mean whereas the first one there's more like this sort of like sure. synth jazz going on mm-hmm. and this one they it's building on top of that but it's a little bit more almost industrial but still using sort of the electronic feel of this the synth jazz. right and i think hans so. zimmer was the perfect person to do that and there is there is one point at the end um when they do um take the uh tears in the rain motif and play yeah. that on top of uh the hans zimmer stuff uh, mm-hmm. i mean i mean like they, they just they just built that into the score they didn't just like play the original um but um it was actually hans zimmer and someone else um yeah benjamin what's his benjamin name? wallfish yes yeah which i'm actually not sure what he's done and like a quick point about both of these uh both the composers and our guy Roger Deakins, just to repoint out what you said earlier, they're allowed to do certain things because it's sci-fi that we wouldn't even necessarily get to see if we did this as like a you know real-time drama, realistic drama. You know, like there's certain shots like the one that I brought up with Joy is like a hologram and so on, and that you just wouldn't you just wouldn't be able to get to in the same way without having the sci-fi setting. It just wouldn't make that much sense at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's nice how the, the genre, you know, it ennobles uh, these storytellers to try yeah. these things. Yeah, something that comes to mind with that is just like like the lighting that they're kind of allowed to use in the city and how that, like, you know, you have a lot of these, like, artificial reds and greens and blues that are just, like, very, very vibrant um, that you can use to, like, really illustrate what you're trying to show in the scene. Oh, yeah, this right? this film is a masterclass in color. I love yeah. the color in this film. It's fucking amazing. It's very prevalent in every scene. Um, Villain needed like uh, and yeah. proud. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah. also the original. The original also is amazing when it comes to color. That's true. And it's the the original is also just a stunning film as well. Frankly, I do agree this is better, but it it is a stunning visual film. And it is. I would also want to point out then that the production designer who's Dennis Gastner, okay. um, because frankly, yeah, these sets and these locations yeah. are beautiful and they somehow avoid that, you know, 80% of films that have CG in them, how they have that gloss to them. And they're able to actually have real environments to have a unique feel for the film. Um, this guy has also done 1917, the Truman show, Skyfall, big fish, nice. you know, Road to Perdition, Quantum of Solace, <laughs> yeah, Jarhead. Awesome. I mean, this guy is fucking amazing. Um, but I think out of even all of those films, other than maybe 1917 in competition, this film has got to be his like magnum opus in terms of production design because it is astounding. I even think of that great shot where they're almost like inside a ziggurat or whatever you call it, like the pyramid, you know, like the square pyramids. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're searching the data, you know? They're searching yeah. like he's getting and then she takes him to um, like the more, you know, she calls him a data hoarder and she takes right. him to like the more secure data and just small things like, oh, look at the data. It's like in a crystal ball and use a laser to illuminate the data or like when he's searching through records and she's talking about Joy's talking about how she's zeros and ones and they're you right. know, four digits and. But just the visuals, the production design, the prop design of him looking through that sort of uh, 
magnifying glass at the data as it's going by, you know, it's all very fresh, very original uh, feel mm-hmm. to it. Um, some beautiful production design, beautiful imagination behind uh, creating this world. Uh, you know, even small things like, I don't even think the first one covered this, but like that wood is like gold now in the sense it's so oh, yeah. because <laughs> it's a trash planet, you know, because it's cyberpunk technically. And, right. And actually yeah. in terms of world building, kind of like what you're getting at, like this, they, they do such a good job at just like bringing uh, like, <sighs> how should I say this? Like when, when you look at something like this, where it's, it's just so, um, so I guess the word that I want to use is realistic, right? Where, where like, yeah, where every, yeah, every detail does something to the world and it, it makes the world seem extremely, extremely vibrant, even though like we we're only actually privy to like a few places in this world. We don't, we don't get to see a lot of different, like, you know, we don't get to explore the world a lot um way less than other sci-fi films you know that are very based in its world right but the way that you see the details interact right like like uh for example when you have someone as powerful as wallace right it 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 obviously would create a massive rift of power so like you you also have to have these scavengers in a dump city right and yeah. it it only makes sense that that would happen where like uh, I would I would point to something like um, uh, Altered Carbon season one which I which I love that show, yeah. right? Um, where you where you have these um, these huge crazy insanely rich people and they like talk about the poverty right? But it's it's like um, when when you go down to the streets it's like it's it's like casinos when it's raining right kind of it's it's yeah like cyberpunky grunge like it, it's it doesn't seem like a horrible place to live right you don't you don't see the poverty whereas like i think blade runner does an incredible job of um illustrating its poverty especially through like visuals and such too and um that's uh, like one one scene that um comes to mind when thinking of that is when Kay is walking up to his apartment through that stairwell and the stairwell is just packed with homeless people right yeah they're all just like screaming at him as yeah exactly and and like and like it it looks like like a some shitty underpass right um like it it has that same feel you know you can you can almost imagine that it smells like piss you know and like like that's that's so much detail interacting in like one moment that like, you know, you can, you can garner so much from that, that like you can imagine the greater world. Right. Oh yeah. And I think that's something that like a lot of sci-fi doesn't do. And that's very, that's a very like graceful way of, of illustrating your world in my opinion is to, is to show how the details interact. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, But let's see yeah i mean even even like illustrating that the fact that his name's walker right um who is a walker jared leto what's his name uh, wallace wallace okay even illustrating like in the very beginning we get our our customary paragraph of ex- exposition which is i think the same with the original blade runner yeah. and they go oh yeah by the way the world almost starved wallace figured out how to do synthetic farming and then you get a look at synthetic farming immediately and it's like right. oh shit it's mega farms like <laughs> yeah. you immediately get this contrast this cyberpunk quintessential cyberpunk contrast between 
the one percent and the ninety nine percent that have to endure trash planet, um, right? With cool neon lights, you know. Well, um, and like but you the get rich like and then so powerful. Yeah, they've become point, gods. Right? They become yeah. gods. They become demigods, and like, but you get like you get this idea that the world's on the brink and then Wallace even talks about like, man, we're only on nine planets. Like we should be on every planet, you know, like, like we yeah. really need to figure this out. And he's referring to yeah, storm the gates uh, of Eden, getting replicants right? pregnant. Yeah. He yeah. uses a lot of biblical language. Yeah. Um, and, but it's interesting. Um, all this talking and there's also this talk about a blackout where there was this other semi cataclysmic event that, that happened that is not fully fleshed out, but in which, you know, data was lost and so on. And, you know, yeah. paper survived. And that was the only thing, uh, you know, and how he uses this to his advantage, how he sort of rose up using these mm-hmm. uh, disastrous, these disastrous things and like how it, you know, they have to sort of conserve resources, how even though they're sort of advanced, they're on the brink of losing everything. Um you know, because even like I, even the when they're walking into the vault with the like the more precious data mm-hmm. um, with love, you know, K and love, mm-hmm. uh, you remember that the lights only turn on as far as they walk into the room. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you get this idea of not only is that amazing, but there's like this energy conservation going on and everything's sort of scarce. Right. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of people a lot of people want to call this cyberpunk and I I would agree that it's cyberpunk. Right. But like, it's, I I think just pushing it into a category like that kind of doesn't do it justice. Like this is, this is just pure sci-fi. Right. And, and you have, you have, yeah, it's in the future. You have kind of this like cyberpunk aesthetic to it, but this is like cyber poverty. Right. There's, there's no, like, I, I mean, like, I guess like you have these big giant colorful ads on in the street and stuff, but like really there's, there's the extremely poor and the impoverished and that's it. Right. And like you have this, you have this thing kind of referenced a lot where like everybody's trying to get off world, right? Everybody wants off yeah. earth um, to the point where like, also we don't really see that many humans in this film. Uh, I think there's like maybe four or five. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I guess, I guess if, if you include all of like the extremely poor, like fucked people and like the, the trash slums of, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. all the Francisco. people in the background, yeah. but actual humans we deal with, it's very little. Right. Like it's the police chief, um, the, the coroner dude, um, that other detective and Wallace, um, and Wallace, right? And I think that's it. I think the other detective is a Blade Runner as well. Um, I'm not sure if he's all four of them. I, I think because I think she's in charge job, of Blade Runners. Well, not all Blade Runners are replicants, though. No, okay. um, yes, a lot of them are human. I think still. at this period, though, I thought they were all Blade Runners, like in the original Harrison Ford period, that there was a mix, but. I got the impression that they are all blade they're all replicants now. So I don't think so because the other the other uh detective I think called him like a skin job or something. No, it was the corner. Right. Was it the corner? Okay. Yeah, uh, it was the corner. Okay. Um but also when Either he's way. walking through the police station, you know, uh, someone like like kind of goes like skinner in his face and you know makes him back off. 
Yeah, I don't think every yeah. cop is a replicant. I just thought every Blade Runner, and I thought she's in charge of Blade Runners. That's what I was um, thinking. Yeah, well, she does say that she's dealt with a lot of his kind, which kind of leads me to assume that like that that would have been an obvious point if all of them were Blade Runners. Yeah. You know, um, where like I think the reason that she brings that up is because like you know, um, it's a little more rare to see that. Um, but it would make sense to have Blade Runners as replicants because of the like strength difference and everything. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, which actually leads me into wanting to talk about the uh the action in this film Go right for it. where it's just so like amazing and brutal and quick and it just like it, it's one of those things that tells you more about the characters in the moment you know like i love that first scene when um he's going up against sapper and like your original your instant like human reaction would be to think oh like sapper is going to destroy him he's so strong right um yeah but you actually see you know this dude like you know bash him through a wall but then you see him flip sapper on his back you know and like uh pin him down with one hand right yeah um crush his throat yeah yeah and and like you see him win in like in like ground combat, which would usually be impossible against someone that that's has that much of a size advantage on you. But like, you know, they are synthetic humans. Right. Yeah. And one thing that I want to mention is that like a lot of people see replicants as robots. They're not actually robots. They're just like synthetically created biological humans. Right. Yeah. Um, so they still bleed. They still do all this, but like uh, one thing that uh, I'm not sure if he doesn't feel pain, but he doesn't really like, um react to it right um because in that, in that tussle in that tussle he he like stabs him in the arm and he doesn't react at all right and denny villeneuve makes this a point to like show us he does it like a close-up on him stabbing stabbing his shoulder and then showing his face unchanging i guess i guess right. you're right about that i guess i I'm, I'm conflating immediately pain with just the emotion of pain as well because there is definitely times where he's in pain but not being not from like violence i suppose i guess you're right about that so yeah like they might they might have like the like oh shit something's wrong with me pain but like like it it seems like they don't feel pain when like when they get hurt right um which like i i love that he's kind of like showing us these moments and like giving us giving us um exposition through the action right of like hey like because they could have just said like oh yeah your pain receptors are turned off right or whatever but like or like they they didn't program you with pain receptors but instead of doing that he's like okay i'm gonna have um this dude stab you in the arm and like you not react at all right and to just continue to uh continue to pin him to the ground and scan his eye while he's stabbing you right yeah um which, you know, it could have also been that, like, Kay didn't believe that he needed to feel pain, you know? So it could have been more yeah. of a philosophical thing of him, like, him knowing to his core that he's not real. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so up for interpretation there, but. Because later on, it does seem as if his injuries take a serious toll on him. Well, that's what I was saying, um, is that, that, like, you kind of see him weakening. You know, and you can tell that he can, he knows that something is wrong. Yeah. Becoming yeah. human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, is there more about the action you want to talk about? Because I have a, 
something else about the the synthetic um, human experience I could take it to. Yeah, why don't you go there? We'll we'll talk more about the action later on in the movie when it comes up. Sure. So two of my favorite scenes in the movie are his sort of uh, the sort of struggle sessions he has to go through these interrogations where oh the baseline test zapped yeah the baseline yeah. test where he gets assaulted with these you know seemingly very cruel phrases and questions and has to repeat uh, words the after each words, one yeah. of them yeah exactly and I think both of these scenes are astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, yeah, it's just I just love those fucking scenes so much. Yeah, and and th- those both of those scenes are just really a, uh, a testament to how subtle uh, Ryan Gosling can be as an actor. Oh yeah, um, there is so much in this movie where Ryan Gosling <laughs> can literally he can give this he can give so much emotion from the smallest little change in his face, yeah. and yeah, he's so uh, idiosyncratic about it. You know, like these mm-hmm. he makes choices that. 99% of actors wouldn't make. Um, it's so yeah. good. It's I, amazing. I, I don't know why people don't ever list him as one of the great actors in our, like he, his, he, he's never done poorly in a role in my opinion. And his movie taste is impeccable. You know, didn't um, we choose him as the uh, the best actor? I, I believe uh, we did. But like, I don't hear yeah. anyone else talk. About him. <laughs> like, everyone's <laughs> well, always we'll just like this. Daniel Day Lewis, <laughs> and I'm like, his name should be up there with him. You know, like he is. Yeah. He is a great. Um, yeah, and I mean, those are such great now, acting like, scenes. Yeah, being able to portray that and those scenes showing, you know, him this gaining of humanity and where they fall, and it's just so good. You know. Yeah, and there's kind of like this. Um, I feel like his character has a bit of this, um, like desperation almost up throughout the entire film. Um, yeah, one one that he like almost entirely rejects, but is is there under the skin the whole time, you know? And like, um, and then when at the end there uh, with the rebels, when he realizes he's not the kid, you know, that's where it sort of yeah, it leaves him. Well, and um. I don't know. Maybe we, maybe we can start talking about uh, what the insight is now. But um, before we do that, I, I kind of want to get into uh, um, just just the way that Denny Villeneuve um, works with actors. And um, like one of the one of the big problems is that like unless someone does something wrong, there's almost no way to garner what they did. Right. Like, because, because like we said with the, um, um, what was it? The overlord episode, like having, having a film Mm. that has a few things wrong with it really allows you to see like into the film, right? You can, you can see the layers, you can see like what they did wrong. And as a result, you can also see how they did things right. Right. Yeah. With a film like this, that is so just profoundly flawless, right? It's, it's so hard to crack. It's because it, it, it's confounding. it, yeah, it, there's no place where you can kind of scooch in there and kind of take a look at what's under the hood because all you can see is the hood, right? Like it's it's yeah. brilliant and um, like I, I don't know. Like every single time I watch this film, and I've I've watched it many times. And I think I've I'm on like seven or eight, and I watched it around four or five times in theaters. Um, yeah, and. Every single time, I just love the movie more. And, like, it's gone from being, like, you know, I, I immediately knew that it was Denny Villeneuve's, like, best made film. 
Um, but it wasn't my favorite, right? I still liked Arrival and stuff more. But I think on this last viewing, it became my favorite. Oh, okay. Um, because it's Prisoner just... still has got such a hold over me. But this <laughs> is an amazing movie. They're all well, amazing, and really. We should just... They are. They are. Um, yeah. And like for this one, every single time I watch it, it just it just amazes me more because the details like you think you're digging into the film and you like, you know, you're going to see what's underneath underneath, you know, <laughs> um, like how you're going to see the inner workings, but you dig down and all you see is more of the film, you know, yeah. and you're like, how far does this shit go? It's crazy, you know, and it's like you just keep trying to dig down, keep trying to like you know, unearth Denny Villeneuve, but he's just so far under there that like, you know, it's, it's incredibly difficult to see what he's trying to do, you know? Yeah. Um, or, or at least his methods for doing what he does, you know? I so, do like what you said earlier though, about how um, one of the ways we can look at it is by him disproving things and. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can see his insight. There. Right. Yeah. I, I guess. I guess. I mean, what I, what I'm trying to. But say not is how that, he like, built it up there. Exactly. You you have like I have no idea like how his craftsmanship works. Right. Like if I wanted to recreate Villeneuve, it would be. It's not like Wes Anderson or Tarantino where you can kind of just like copy it pretty yeah. easily. You know, like Denny Villeneuve's are so like there's so much depth to any of these films to where like you know he's he's almost well, also Villeneuve is and giving Villeneuve. You, like, inviting you to dig right yeah um well also Villeneuve is a like insight filmmaker whereas yeah. like those other two guys are more stylistic more for sure for sure meta yeah um but like you know when when you try to dig into these films like i was saying you just find more film right <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you're thinking oh this has got to be the time when i figure out what uh like how he did this right you just end up seeing more details about the film that are just so profound, you know, and it's amazing. And the other director that I think is like, this is, uh, Hayao Miyazaki, um, of mm. studio Ghibli. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess, I guess maybe we should start. Um, do, do you want to may maybe start orbiting this insight a little bit? Sure. I mean, we could do it whatever way you would like to do it. But one of the ways that it was that I was able to start seeing this through my rewatches mm -hmm. um, was looking at a, at a character by character basis, frankly, because yes. each character yeah. is relating to this insight. Well, and I think um, that that's actually done by design, because I think there's oh, yeah. there's a, there's one thing that's on the nose in this film, because almost nothing is on the nose almost everything in this film is incredibly subtle right there's one thing that's on the nose and that is the names of the characters right mm -hmm. <laughs> and i think i think denny villeneuve or, or i guess the writers did this for us just so we could you know have a jumping point right yeah. um and like we said um every character has a relationship with what um with what um it means to have a soul or to be human right um yeah and we literally have a character named joy we literally have a character named love right <laughs> we, have, uh, we have our average joe and uh right Agent right <laughs> right yeah. um like they, they make the names very very on the nose and i think that like that needed to happen because of how um how in-depth 
the insight is and how complex the insight is. And actually that runs along the same vein as, um, as sci-fi in general, right? Because like sci-fi yeah. has on the nose elements in, in its film and it does that. So it can like be like, okay, moving on, right? This is established. This is part of the world. Like, you know, this is a person that's not born. Right. Yeah. And I think that's important. Uh, I think that, that like having a synthetic uh, human as the main character is important for this philosophical debate because I think half the world or more would immediately say that if you are like if you are human, you have a soul. Right. If you are yeah. biological, you have a soul, which is actually one of the arguments made in this. Right. Because uh, when when Kay is asked to retire the. uh the replicant right he says he's never um he's never retired something that was born before yeah right and then she says what do you mean he's like well to be born is to have a soul right and then her yeah. her response was um you're doing fine with that one yeah like yeah that. yeah <laughs> you've been you've been getting along fine he's like excuse me and she says uh you've been doing fine without a soul right yeah um which like so the implication there is that like um you know, she believes that non-biological people don't have souls. But I think what's interesting is that she is maybe the coldest character in in this film, right? She orders the death of this child, right? Um, and when you have uh, when you have all these different characters that are that are interacting with what it means to have a soul or to be real or to be human you know like it's this like um it becomes very obvious what they're trying to say pretty early on which like i think i was it the did i see it the first time with you or i might have seen it alone the first time but no i don't think we sat together initially at first yeah it might have been my second viewing that i saw with you but um like we we knew that it had something to do with the soul um oh yeah on our first viewing, right? Like, well, that's what um, you have to do, right? If you have a synthetic human, well, you can't base being what is human biologically. You ultimately, if there is going to be, there's no difference, then right. there has to be something immaterial about what it is to be a human. And that's mm -hmm. generally what the soul is always stood for, you know, the animus, what animates the material. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it, it, it's clear. I mean, they talk about it, you know? So. Yeah. Um, but like love, right. Um, a lot of, a lot of people would say that, um, uh, like loving something means you have a soul, yeah. right. And mm -hmm. what Denny Villeneuve did was he showed us how love can be soulless, <laughs> right. Because you have this, like, you have her like love towards her creator, Right. Yeah. And through like through servitude and it's this like very um, perverse and distorted thing. And it's like based on fear and denial. And it even gets to the point where like um, like she's literally like that scene when she's killing the police captain. Yeah. And she's literally crying, you know, yeah. and, and they don't like her. She like doesn't match right like like the the tears don't make sense in that moment right she she's like has this like anger right um, yeah, she accuses our police chief of being petty small-minded right and 
yeah, no, like, well, she's even referred to as inhuman. She's referred to as right. an angel because right. our Wallace guy is godlike. Um, right. They are sort of representations, as you were pointing out, of being inhuman, even though Wallace is human, even though he's augmented. Right. And uh, we know that love is synthetic. Um, so, yeah, you're right. The the love thing, it's clear that. Do you think it's, uh, but do you think she's, because that, that interests me. I would defer to you on this. Um, mm. But part of me thinks that it's not just showing you think because I I don't get the idea that he's trying to say oh no you're right you're right never mind I was about to say that I, I I'm not getting the idea that he's trying to make a movie where these synthetic humans have to sort of gain their humanity uh, rather than already just having it but I think no what you're pointing out is correct that uh, on a symbolic level this is what's happening with love uh, and she's directly referred to it as being inhuman in terms of being an angel and so on Right. So, um, so there's yeah. um, the next one I want to point out is joy. Right. And I think that this there's a lot of focus on joy because um, I think when you ask most people what makes them happy, what gives them meaning, you know, they say being yeah, what happy. gives them meaning happy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whatever makes them happy. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I think, one of the most famous um, arguments to make. Right. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because what he did was almost allow us to believe in it for a long time right um yeah but it's funny cuz he he also makes sure that we understand that it's hmm. false right like every single time he has these like he has these emotional connected human moments with joy, right? It's all every single time it is cut against something that shows us that she's not real. Yeah. Right. Um, and they the can't first time, end up kissing the rain's going through her. Well, I mean, not, not yeah. just that. Cause like, it, like, sure. She's not like physically there. Right. But like yeah. the idea is that the happiness, the joy could really be there. Right. But mm -hmm. the first time he gets a phone call and she pauses, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. The second time—that's that, right at the kiss in the rain. Yeah, yeah. right. That's the second I time, he—I I can't remember what happens in the second time, but the uh, no, no, yeah, the second time I think is when he uh, when they have the sex scene. With yeah, the, with prostitute, the prostitute, right? And who's also synthetic. Yeah, um, but instead of instead of like showing us the sex scene, right, or showing us any nudity or anything like that, what he did was he cut outside to a billboard of joy that says anything that you want to see, anything that you want to hear. Yeah. Right. Yep. Implying that she is literally just a subject of like a program being run against Kay's fantasies. Right. Yeah. Um, and then like, you know, she seems real for a while after that. And like, you know, she ends up um, even like putting herself in a situation where she could be in danger right um and yeah. then she gets smashed and killed right and we think okay well you know maybe it is joy right but then that is contrasted at the end when like i, th I think this is another brilliant point from denny villeneuve is that like where he decided to show nudity in this film right because i feel like most directors would have just put it on the sex scene right yeah 
and we, the the sex scene actually has zero nudity in it it's it's when we see nudity is at the end when he disproves joy right when you have a gigantic hologram an advertisement yeah. of joy just nude in the middle of the city like and and i think this is important because you know he's he's in this like very intimate relationship with her for a long time mm-hmm. right and um the uh the hologram calls him joe yes right and Names she joe yeah and she also says uh looks like you've had a uh looks like you've had a day which is the first thing that she says to him at the very beginning of the movie right mm-hmm. and so what what we realize here is that she is like I, I think the point that we we see here and i think it's the final this is the final moment and i think that this is important because we go through a lot of different um meanings of what it could mean to have a soul right yeah this is this is the final moment where we see the last shred of what it could mean like pulled away from k mm-hmm. right um because we're like okay so it's joy it, it's it's literally joy right on the nose on the name right um it's happiness like it's it's this um like relationship with this girl right which is so it's, good because yeah. in a way we've talked about how we hate how I know we we rarely use that word, but we really have talked about uh, these very simple life affirming movies, which are essentially what we're talking about right now with joy, where like the entire insight of the film sort of gets boiled down to, Oh, like life is worth living because there's a montage of you laughing with your friends at the end of the movie. And you know, (laughs) they're all running around and there's their, the hair as they lean out the car window and you know, and like, that's the, with the, the message of the movie boils down to and that's sort of exactly what we're getting at here with joy which is not the you know that's not what it means to to be, be alive human. and to, yeah yeah <laughs> like and you you it's have not life affirming <laughs> no it's not at all right and like i think yeah. i think that moment is perfectly illustrated because you have k broken and bloody and like having lost joy and have basically like he was told by these people that like um that the love uh, kills joy well no he was, he was told by these people that the what was it uh, oh no i'm just saying that i don't try <laughs> i'm just saying that i think that's funny that's that true love kills joy. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um he was told by these people that uh that the only way to give your life true meaning is to like um die serving something greater than yourself and they're doing that in reference to telling him that like it's fine if deckard dies right now because it would be in service to this rebellion Right. Um, and which is another thing that is pointed out symbolically in the film and that, uh, there does seem to be illusion illusions made in all of these false cases towards connection with others. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's pointing out here at the very least a false type of connection. Um, right, right. As not being what, what it means to be human, that there might be connection involved in what it means to be human, but not, not like this, not as like, you know, being a, a soldier for a revolutionary army. Um, right. Well, I think that because right? there's allusions why... to that by, but our God character as well, Wallace, by yeah. him talking about the species and disposable labor 
and the uh, what he could do if he could make synthetics be able to get pregnant. And yeah. there's also the B scene. Yeah, that's, well. that's exactly yeah. what I was going to point out was that there's there's imagery yeah. involving bees right before we have this arc with the with the rebe- with the rebels, right, where they say, like, you know, essentially, yeah. like, die for your queen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you can have meaning. And it's like that's how you can be human. And it's like, well, bees do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I love that Denny Villeneuve decided to use these like, you know, mindless insects, you know, to I also like. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead and talk about that. Uh, well, to juxtapose um, this, like, you know, queen of the rebellion, essentially. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It's it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, what were you going to say, though? And I also like that one of the rebels is involved in, in, in Joy's arc as well, you mm-hmm. know, as being a, a false answer. Um, but what I want to say as well is that at the very beginning, we're given some degree of an answer that points back to the material, right? We're, we're given two things, really. We're talking about a soul. Mm-hmm. But when he kills Zapper, remember, he's like, you haven't seen a miracle. And this is like right. repeated. Right. Uh, you haven't seen a miracle. So we're pointing to two things that are immaterial. Right. Mm -hmm. And then not only that, but the actual child of the synthetics, or at least one synthetic, Mm -hmm. uh, it does something seemingly immaterial, which is crafting dreams. Right. Um, So I I would like to point that out in that these three things um, that are being pointed out uh, that are given to us, really, that are more obvious than the other things in, in the movie um that we could point to like the snow and so on are are talking about an immaterial quality of what it means to be uh human and so i do like and you should you probably have more to say on this than me but i do like how he ignores the queen bee so to speak yeah and he (laughs) saves harrison ford because he has this immaterial connection with his daughter that's a miracle that it happened in the first place and that it would be sort of bastardizing it to use it uh for you know uh, a crass revolution, so to speak. Well, and, and um, like, I think that she is someone that like, um, what, like that she's another, just another, she's a miracle for all disprove, of them though. Right. You know, no, that, that's just, a, yeah. what I'm saying is that's just another thing that he had to disprove because like a lot of people would say like, uh, you know, what does it mean to be human? You know? And they say that like, you know, service to some greater good or, you know, something like that. And like, that's also not true. Right. And so like, here we are at the, yeah. And like, I kind of want to get into this last scene in the film. Um, when Kay decides to bring Deckard to see, um, his daughter, his daughter. Right. And, um, what I want to point out is, is, um, that as Kay is dying on these steps, Right. Um, they are playing the tears in the rain motif. Yeah. Right. Which is exactly the same um, motif that was. It's funny that we can tell he dies as well. Like everyone walks away knowing that he dies. Oh, yeah. It's obvious. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, like, I think it's just one of those things where it would be dumb if he didn't. You know, that would kind of like ruin the point. (laughs) But. And the interesting thing is that he did die for something uh, bigger than himself, but it wasn't yeah. some rebellion. Not his own it choice. Wasn't, right. Um, 
and what I think is interesting is that, uh, like one of the things that kind of started getting me closer to this was looking at the scenes between Harrison Ford and Ryan Gosling back in Vegas. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, at which point he does think that he, that he's talking to his father. Right. Like during that whole time, Kay is under the impression that Harrison Ford Ford is his father. Yeah. Right. And this movie has an interesting quality to it in that the main character, uh, like if you want to talk about tropes, it kind of like reverses one, um, which is that like, you know, the main character is the chosen one. Um, yeah. It's in this, the main character is specifically not the chosen one. And that's actually important. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And instead of seeing this grand, grand, uh, you know, battle between some rebellion that like uses a born synthetic to like, um, which which would be, you know, the route that most people would go, right? Yeah, you like see, politics gives meaning to life, makes you right, something like um, that power struggle. Yeah, where like instead of doing that, we see this this small story about a replicant that believed he was human, that believed he was yeah. born, right? Um, and what's interesting is uh and i think what's beautiful about the film is that what we witness at the end is a replicant who like has a soul for a moment right it's mm-hmm. this it's this moment that's completely isolated without any witnesses with no one there to see it you know where like this flame flickers into existence like only to go out without being seen yeah. You know, and I think that that's so fucking beautiful. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. tears and rain. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> um, and essentially, like, um, uh, even even the last line of the film, which I think is brilliant, um, is uh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Right. And it's the it's the daughter referring to the snow. You know, but yeah. I love that it means different things to every single character and the audience, right? Because she's referring to the snow. What Harrison Ford it means to Harrison Ford is his daughter, yeah, right. Um, to Kay outside, it's his soul, right? <laughs> and yeah. to us, the audience, it's this like brief moment that just flickers out of existence, it. yeah. And yeah. it's, it's just, it's beautiful, right? It is It's like, yes, it is. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But just like having a last line like this, that's so emotionally multifaceted is amazing. And like, that's actually what I would say about all the scenes in this film. I, I don't think there's a, a single scene in this film that is emotionally simple, right? Like emotional complexity is the name of the game here. Right? Oh yeah. Um, but um we've talked about everything that it isn't right like to be human or to have a soul right um but i think one of the or two of the main things that really helped me figure out what denny villain was actually trying to say was jade and i talking about the snow and then um Mm -hmm. and then uh also one of harrison ford's last lines or last questions to uh k right 
which is who am I to you, right? To which K ignores, right? Uh, He says, go see your daughter, (laughs) right? And I think the important part of that is that he is no one to him, right? He has no connection to him whatsoever, right? He is the man that he believed to be his father, but wasn't his father. Yeah. Right. Like he is literally nobody to him, but Kay died in order to let this man see his daughter. Right. And like what, what we kind of bold it down to is that like what, um, what we, really like kind of um well it's it's so hard to like put into words but um essentially what we were thinking was it was something along the lines of like to have a soul or to be human is to like sacrifice in selflessness yeah right to have no uh, to to like just be good in, in in like in the truest sense of that word Right. Yeah. To essentially give yourself up for something that you have no, no stake in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And like, I think that that's, that actually so true. rings so true. true. Yeah. And it, it rings true throughout history too. Cause like all of the, a lot of the greatest figures throughout history have given themselves for, oh, yeah. for things that they would never see. Right. Like they, they had no, they had no stake in that other than that they were human. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a beautiful concept and it, it, it's something where like such a complex idea is boiled down into such simple terms that rings true over such a broad space, <laughs> you know, is, yeah. is so amazing. And like that, that's why, like, I think that this might be one of the best films of all time right um yeah just because it and takes I, I lo- yeah go ahead go ahead no go ahead um it, You're good. It, just it taking such such a complicated subject and being able to show us like to show us a proof essentially for this concept in what like three hours right is yeah just it's pretty really, amazing it's 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 beyond amazing. it's it's genius right it's so so well done and like i feel like this is the kind of movie that should inspire people to like do so much better in film you know and yeah, big time. really think about you know what they're trying to say and like what film is for and what art is for you know um but this this movie is absolutely beautiful, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, every single t- like I I figured out the insight maybe on my third or fourth watch. I think it was my fourth watch. Um, but having a like watching it every single time after that, and like just getting like all the small little details, you know. And how everything connects together and how there's not a wasted second in this film, you know? Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. And it's one of those films that like, I don't know, like merits 
several several rewatches and is one of those films that i i'm gonna personally be watching for the rest of my life you know because not only because like i think it's well made but also because i think the insight's beautiful and is something that i need to need to be reminded of once in a while you know Mm -hmm. um but did you did you have anything to add and i know you want to jump in there i think you uh yeah no i think you summed it up pretty on point there i was going to add something that i was like you know what that's a little not important <laughs> uh but i'll say it now which is i do like uh on a low level aspect of the insight how what is sacrifice but a sort of the immaterial will the the immaterial animus willingly demolishing um some aspect of the material giving it up mm-hmm. um you know so this once again you know his soul so to speak i just that's not a massive thing but i just like pointing that out so i think yeah. it's very cool but like kind of to loop it back to the beginning of what we were talking about like that this is this is not i i don't want this episode to come across as like us trying to um shit on john john krasinski at all you know, no, like, no. we're not trying to compare the two like this. This movie is a like once in a generation masterpiece. Right. And should not be the standard by any means for a good sequel. Right. Mm. <laughs> like is it would be absurd to believe that. Right. Um, but no, I agree. But I also I would also like to point out that when you have something so incredibly great, that is what allows um, the few among us to make that giant leap forward, that giant leap on top. So even though I would agree that it's a ridiculous standard, I think any filmmaker should attempt to hit it. No, uh, for sure. Because otherwise you're, there's no way. There's no way. So Right. And like, it, it, it's fine to make insights, about, like your insights simple, you know, like you don't, you don't have to go for the Blade Runner. You don't have to make it this like complex thing that will resonate through like, your core of being human you know and like and like Mm -hmm. just ripple back and like make you realize like see the entire world and like all of history through a new lens like you don't have to achieve that with your insight right like um (laughs) um there's yeah the insight can be simple yeah and but to when you're making a sequel right it has to be something that matches and expands on the original movie. And I think Blade Runner, like, like I would be, if someone told me that I had to make the sequel to Blade Runner, I would be having a stressed heart attack. Right. Because like, Oh yeah. The the first one is so profound where, and like so beloved by the community that loves it too, that like, I would be so terrified of fucking it up. You know? Well, did you hear how villain referred to it? No. Uh, he he said uh, he would like other directors were saying when they were calling him and talking to him about it that he was referring to it as a suicide mission uh, <laughs> that he was going to be like a suicide bomber in a sense with this film. Yeah, uh, okay. Which I think is perfect that even yeah. aligns to some degree with the insight. So for sure, um, yeah, of course it does too, right? That's <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I I would have been terrified of making a sequel to Blade Runner. Um, but if anyone could do it, it's Denny Villeneuve, right? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, he is like I I don't know why he, he's not just widely considered a master director yet. Um, 
like he's he's always like first or second on my list of the best directors like of all time oh yeah he's amazing yeah um but i don't know no, like Mr. french canadian god director <laughs> yeah <laughs> um what was the crit like i feel like the critical reception of this film was like a little uh it wasn't i feel like it was mostly it good too bad yeah you know um there wasn't what i found sort of uh sad about this is the box office that yeah. was what was disappointing was this movie took about 150 million to make is what they say now they generally don't include marketing in that and they generally market the shit out of a movie they make for 150 million dollars and it made sure. worldwide 259 so that's more yeah. than what the reported budget is but remember unless you can see the books the calculation that you have to make is that they have to at least make double in order to have made their money right. um so they're like 40 short and we don't even know if that budget includes marketing so that was the disappointing thing. I mean, the first one which was too. But the so. very cool thing, you know, exactly, repeated the exact same thing. Both of them were, yeah. in a sense, box office flops. But the very interesting thing is, I think it was so obvious how good the fucking movie was anyway, that it didn't even hurt <laughs> anybody's career involved in it. Uh, because yeah. he immediately gets to go on and do Dune. Because it's clearly <laughs> obvious. It's like yeah. undeniably good. Yeah. Um, of course, there are some imbeciles who try to say otherwise, but... You know, if people, you know, are just have some basic honesty to them, uh, it's undeniably very, at least a very good film, if not, as we're saying, you know, absolute yeah. masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was interesting. I remember that sort of pissing me off in 2017 when this came out. And like, I'm like, because yeah. I, I saw it three times in theaters and I was like, I went once I think with me or like Jeremiah, once with you and once with my parents. Okay. And I was pissed week by week seeing that like it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't getting doing well. business yeah like, this is so fucking good i mean to be um, fair though like i don't think blade runner the original one has like the star power of something like star wars that just draws audiences in you know yeah um it, it, it just it wasn't it really a franchise star, star, star power right yeah. um like not a lot of people have actually seen blade runner right the first that's one. true yeah it's um, not a it's not a major franchise yeah right um also, I'll point out that it has an 81% by the audience on Tomato. So people liked it. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, my mom hates sci-fi. And when I brought her to watch it, she was like, wow, that's great. She's like, this is like Arrival. I liked Arrival. And I'm like, oh, that's funny because they're the same person. Yeah. Um, but. <laughs> so. um, yeah, no, I think I think that it's just one of those films, too, that like is so. Um, I would say that this is maybe villeneuve's most cryptic movie besides enemy enemy yeah yeah um like this movie is agreed very very like this movie is not about what happens right mm -hmm. like i i feel like to a lot of people like it might have seemed a little random right because hmm. like there because if you're not thinking about what everything means and you're thinking about like literally what is going on you know and like I, I saw a lot of confusion surrounding, um, surrounding like Kay's journey as well. Like when it was coming out, like everyone was like, everyone was confused at the end. They're like, wait, he's not the dude. He's not like, you know, <laughs> like yeah. they, 
they didn't even see it as like a twist they saw it as like you know they, they didn't even like they were expecting it double twisted yeah. yeah um and then like imagine if like you're you're hanging on to the details of like the actual plot right and if that movie ends how it ends right you'd be like wait what the fuck yeah. <laughs> what about the rebellion right like that's yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how you'd be so i feel like there's like there there is a big portion of the the film watching crowd that is very literal and the way that they oh, yeah. want to watch movies you know and like they don't they don't see um a deeper meaning behind anything and they don't see anything as being figurative they just are there for the uh surface level yeah they're consuming they're yeah. consuming that's um, like how i like to put it there's a great scene in tarkovsky's stalker where the writer's sitting on the the well and he's like all you know he's talking about the audience and the critics in general and he's like all you know how to do is consume you're so illiterate yeah um <laughs> and he's saying these as like negative things yeah yeah <laughs> um, and i feel like that applies perfectly to what we generally talk about and what you're talking about right now yeah um, where like i I don't, I don't think this movie has an ounce of space for people like that like the the action's yeah. short quick and done with fast and yeah it's brutal but like there's i think the longest action scene is probably right at the beginning right um mm-hmm. or maybe maybe the one with love at the end um but i wouldn't even say that there was a lot of fighting going on in that it was mostly just like three guns yeah, there's not a lot of action in this movie yeah it was there's not yeah but that's the similar with the first blade runner as well yeah. um but you know like it's I don't know. Like, I feel like for me and for most people, frankly, uh, it is still incredibly engaging, even though there's like really 100%. no action. Like there's these brief moments of very quick action. You know, um, you know, it's it's the same people who said that um, that drive is a bad movie because nothing happens. There's no driving. Yeah, there's no driving. No, 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 no not, <laughs> the, the, not those the, people. The ones that say that, like, okay. that watch it and they're like, why are they just staring at each other? You know, yeah, and exactly. like they can't like it's funny because there was this theory that was floating around. I love this theory. It, it, <laughs> there's this theory floating around um, that uh, the character in Drive is autistic. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that's um, why they're not talking. Yeah. And he, they're like, well, they're just staring at each other and there's nothing happening. And I'm like, well, there's actually a lot happening. Um, I feel like yeah. the only way that you wouldn't be able to see what's happening between these two in those moments is if you were on the spectrum. Right. If you like you were physically well, that, unable to. So what's funny is I think it's like a mirror theory where like they're seeing nothing happening in those moments. So they believe that they're that the character is autistic. But what's really happening is that they're they're, they're not able to see it. Right? They're, they're not able to process it. So they're their own like kind of autistic tendencies. Yeah, they're projecting. Are, right, right. Yeah, that's interesting because it really relates to that that quote I just brought up where the writer's sitting on the will and he says negatively that they're all literate, they're all consuming. But he also says they all have sensory deprivation, which is another way of saying they're desensitized, which I think perfectly applies here as well, where you're so used to the sci-fi movie with the, you know, the Revolutionary War and the bajillion action scenes that when you don't have that or you have something like drive this film with these quiet scenes... You know, you're not, you're so desensitized, you can't pick up on these smaller sounds, so to speak, these smaller emotional moments. Right. Um, intricacies. So, yeah. yeah. And like, they definitely really, there's definitely a, a, a class of people uh, like that. Very stay away, you know, find <laughs> out and stay away. 
Um, yeah, and I, I think that they just they probably just didn't like this movie. Uh, I I could see why. Like, it's not there's like it would it would seem very barren. I think to the viewer that looks that way. Um, well, every film every film has got to have some haters, frankly. Yeah, it's and always how it works. Like this one, like we said before, a lots in the details. Um, I mean, even in the action, like when you there there's one scene in the coroner's office, right where like uh the the coroner Coco. Uh, comes up yeah. to uh love right while she's like um taking that taking the stuff bomb. and she just she just kills she, she just kills him right and the point of this action yeah. scene in my opinion was to show how fragile humans are in comparison right yeah, he just gets obliterated yeah well she just she like literally just smacks the back of his neck and you just see his spine collapse and his whole head lose like uh, lose any sort of support and he's sitting there bleeding out of every orifice in his face as he dies yeah. you know and it's like it's it's like i think i think the emotion that you're supposed to feel there isn't oh that was so short like that would have been fucking stupid if there was like a fight between yeah. the corner and love right yeah like the whole point was to show how unmatched it'd be pornographic are. yeah yeah exactly it, it, yeah absolutely yeah. um, um but also, like, uh, they, they show that later, too, when um, when Harrison Ford locks up the door and he's, like, running to his ship and uh, Cage blows through the wall. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and, and just stuff like that where it's, like, um, you really see how inhuman these, um, or superhuman, I guess, these synthetic humans are. Um, There's also uh, one thing I'd like to point out that I forgot to bring up as evidenced, you know, how we were talking about how one of the false insights one yeah. of the things being disproven is being human through connection to other humans mm-hmm. um well we related it to both you know the queen bee so to speak the bee scene and uh, our god wallace but it's also the police chief remember that she's doing everything she's doing uh in terms of connection uh some sort of balance between two separate groups that she mm-hmm. sees uh, right. but i just wanted to bring that up because uh, i remembered it now yeah, because with the corner scene, and then she gets killed, you know, in a similar fashion. Yeah, you know, you know what I also love in terms of like how like realistic, and and what what I want to say here is like a lot when I'm when I say realistic, I do mean like um, as if this world exists within our within the rules of our universe, right? Yeah. Like like a realistic dragon. A lot of people would say, well, dragons aren't realistic, so it doesn't matter. Like you always hear that whole like. Well, it's fantasy, so it doesn't have to be realistic, or it's sci-fi, so it doesn't have to be realistic, right? Which, like, I totally yeah. disagree with, right? I, I, I don't believe that just because you're in a fantasy setting, like, you just get to throw the rules of the universe out the window, right? So, like, the difference between an unrealistic dragon and a realistic dragon to me would be, like, does this dragon have, like, the wingspan to support its body weight? Does its, like, you know... Um, sure does it have like glands in its mouth to shoot fire? Right. Or is it just like this magical talking being that like, you know, like it doesn't like they don't have lips. So how is it talking? Right. That kind of thing, you know, like it, yeah. it's the difference between a realistic sci-fi film and an unrealistic sci-fi film is like, um, uh, like, like in, uh, some of the action in, Blade Runner, like for example, when he gets his car um uh shut down, right? Which by the way, can I just sidebar? 
I love the sound design in that scene. It's fucking amazing. Oh, yeah. um, like just the whole like how they use silence in that moment when like the lightning hits and like everything shuts off and like the score comes in with this huge like you know like guttural noise as he starts falling like yeah. amazing amazing just how all those pieces fit together and like achieve something together was just so good <laughs> anyways when he crashes into the ground and you know these scavers come to like steal his car because like they they're so poor they just live in trash heaps right and they have whole systems put in place to um to steal cars that are passing through right yeah, um and they, highway bandits yeah and they do it as mobs right and like um uh something my uh my significant other recently just uh pointed out to me when we were she was watching this with me is that like she thought it was cool how there, how there was no traffic at all right mm. and i was like oh shit yeah you're right like there is no traffic like there's there's no cars i mean there, there's not no cars but there's very very few right mm -hmm. and it like the more i watched the more i realized like how impoverished everyone in this um everyone in this world was and like in contrast to um to love who starts annihilating these bandits with a like orbital strike that yeah. she's doing while she's from like some glasses while she's getting her like nails done fingernails yeah. and that's the the like that action scene shows so much about the world and like how powerful the powerful are and how insignificant like everyone else is you know and like that's the kind of action we're seeing and all the action means something it's not just gratuitous right and like that's that's what we're talking about when we say like this movie is just packed with detail you know, yeah. like every single second is important. Every single second means something. Every single action means something. Every single choice. Means well, something. you know, yeah. yeah. And you get the whole what is valuable thing. Right. And then you see in Wallace's like water dungeon yeah. <laughs> slash like Skyrise office. Uh, it's wood. There's wood everywhere as right. opposed to, you know, because it's luxurious, right, uh, right, right. luxurious. So. Yeah, it's just yeah. There's detail everywhere. They the world building is immense. They really took the original world and ran with it. And I'm so glad that they did it the way they did, and we didn't just get some glossy sheen CG world mm -hmm. uh, with you know some rebellion story of synthetic humans. You know. Yeah. So no, th this is this was one thousand percent the way to go, and this is a this is a proper sequel to Blade Runner um and like i i know villain was probably worried going into this but like he he fucking did it he 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 yeah. outdid the original right like <laughs> like at least in my opinion like i think i think this this movie not only reached a more profound insight but like did it with such grace and perfection that like I don't know. This this is this is just something that like I think filmmakers should strive to be more like. You know. Yeah. Um I don't know. It's just super good. <laughs> uh but Yeah, I don't know. I actually I actually have 
literally no notes about this film. Like I, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know one or two shots that could have been better. Like it's like, it's, yeah. it's just brilliant across the board. Yeah. At a certain point it, that's, that'd almost be too pretentious. Yeah. To, you know, <laughs> to do that with this film. <laughs> I mean, almost any film, but some films are, uh, you know, needed. Um, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, also like, I'm sure we're going to, before we publish this episode for everyone uh we're gonna be like damn we should have talked about this or that or this but uh you know we can't it would you know be a disservice trying to go through it scene by scene uh, yeah you might as well just watch the fucking movie yeah exactly so, and the thing is like this is this is a movie that we could talk about for like of course i have a million things that i want to talk about with this film like there I'm, I'm just jumping at the like i just went on for like you know five minutes there about like the action in the in the uh trash city with like the orbital strikes right like every yeah. single moment in this movie has has like so much meaning like that and what you can like we can sit down and talk about it all but like and and like i i want to but the episode would be like 10 hours right <laughs> like you know and like at that point it's like just yeah like you said go watch the movie like go watch it over yeah. and over and like experience all those little bits and see what the movie has to offer every time because like there's no way that you can just gather all of it in one sitting mm -hmm. um yeah i don't know yeah this, the this, set pieces uh, set pieces are amazing in this in this film you know yeah yeah they are, they really are but, talking about the orbital strike or the elvis scene yeah or the water you know the water at the end all of it it's fucking amazing dude yeah which um actually i i love the dialogue i love that they chose uh what's the song uh can't help falling in love uh by elvis to yeah. be the, to be the song that like stops like stops them from fighting you know and <laughs> and decker's just like i love this song <laughs> like yeah. yeah and it, it's just, it was just this great way of like trying to because he's just like punched him three times in the face right and he's starting to realize that like if this guy wanted to kill him he would be dead you know yeah <laughs> to like be the aggressor and then be the one trying to like defuse that situation too like uh it was just a great moment um but uh yeah one thing that i haven't really looked into too much um that I really wanted to like so Wallace's Wallace's um company, like it has that uh, like little jingle that dun, 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 right, which is um uh Peter and the Peter and the Wolf by uh, Prokofiev. Mm. Um just this like uh, classical Russian piece about a boy who like saves um a duck and something something else from a actually i think the duck gets eaten but uh from a wolf okay. um but i'm not really sure how, how it lines up or what he's trying to say by that but i'm sure like, well it has meaning <laughs> to build on that we also get uh i'm gonna butcher the guy's last name but i think it's nabokov we get a a, a brief flash of his book uh that ryan gosling has been reading at some point oh yeah okay uh and i'm pretty sure that's important as well uh, i think he took a lot of insight uh from in that book. book a lot of inspiration from that book and that's a great writer i believe really great writer 
one of the classic greats out there. Also, mm-hmm. speaking about books, and it's also important, we haven't mentioned this the entire episode, but the original Blade Runner was loosely based off of uh, uh, Philip K. Dick's do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Right. Which is funny that this one brought the dreams back. You know, we have the, the sequel brought mm-hmm. the dreaming aspect of it of the of that back. Um, so that's you know, once again, like if if I were ever to do like an insane study of this film, more yeah. than just repeatedly watching it, I would be watching both the movies, all the cuts of the first one, all the behind the scenes, reading the fucking Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, reading the yeah. Nabokov book, you know, <laughs> looking into the score. Yeah. Um, and maybe one day I will, because it's definitely, if you were going to go that far, this is one of the films that's worth it. Definitely. That, definitely. So. And I would, I would point out that you should also probably look into uh, Galatians and the Bible too, because they do mention yeah. at that one point means. with, um, uh, uh, well, Galatians, I don't think that, not Genesis. Uh, no, I know. Yeah. I'm just saying also Adam and Eve, because yeah, he yeah. mentions Eden. So. Oh, right, right. Um, yeah. but specifically, uh, when there, when Ryan Gosling is looking into, or when Kay is looking into the uh, the records for the children, um, yeah. it says that the the male version of the child died to uh, Galatian syndrome, which isn't an actual disease mm. or anything, but um, I know that it has something to do with the Bible. So, <laughs> um, so I mean, like, it's interesting. There would be a lot of little details to look into. And I think that I think that Denny Villeneuve is one of these directors that um, like he, he does give you everything that you need inside the movie. Right. Like like everything that you need to figure out what this movie is about is in the movie. Right. But he does also give you little details that can act as like clues if you're still not getting it or like, um, you know, I think maybe he puts his like sources of inspiration in there, you know, mm-hmm um but it's it's interesting yeah um, no uh villano definitely strikes me as a guy that's just constantly listening to music reading books watching films oh yes yeah, no, totally you know, getting constantly inspired just building up that repertoire yeah of uh you know of art yeah. experienced no but uh i'm not sure how much more we can talk about this just because I mean, like, yeah. of course, we can get into a shit ton more detail about every little scene, but like, we've covered the inside already. We talked about the people involved. We talked about a few also, scenes. Um, yeah, good. No, also, we can come back and, and do another one. So, and we very well might. This would be one of the films that would be worthy of another episode at some point if we find it to be appropriate. We've already talked about possibly doing that with the king. So, yes. we'll see, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh man, this. Oh, and I just want to also give a quick shout out to um, what's her name, Anna Dalms or Ames? Yeah, Anna. Anna de Armas. Um, yeah. she's great. She did so good at the, she. She was Joy, right? But like that character just being this like super convincing but like completely false yeah. personality high. is yeah. yeah, just nailed it on the head. I mean it's. Just every actor did him and even even um what's his face uh why can't i remember his name uh the guy who plays the literal dude in uh dave batista yeah, yeah, yeah. In guardians of the galaxy um yeah he's good he did amazing as sapper too and like that i've like 
it's so interesting because for a while there at the beginning i didn't even like realize it was him because <laughs> i'm so used to seeing yeah. him in the drax makeup and stuff that like you know <laughs> um but yeah he's a unique looking guy it's um robin wright as well she's yes. always a pleasure she was fucking amazing jared leto mm-hmm. jared leto is usually hit and miss for me but man he hit it hard this time the casting's just great in yeah. general yeah the cast there's not a single person with a speaking role that i'm not you know impressed with in this movie yeah even even the just the small side characters with like one line you know or yeah the guy that he brings the horse to <laughs> yeah know, yeah oh, actually that guy he was, is he's the guy from uh yeah captain phillips yeah he's yeah. great um which he had a funny story for how he showed up i think he was like actually just some like local merchant that they hired and he was just like fucking amazing on the screen <laughs> um for captain phillips yeah yeah Yeah. um yeah yeah i love that they went and found some actual you know authentic somalians and that felt it's just a great film yeah yeah um but yeah no honestly like the when when all the actors line up like that when when like you see all these really really strong performances like across the board like usually you can thank the director for that you know like i I, i'd say that like when you get that you have directors that are like really sitting down with actors and having like extensive conversations with them and this is something that i really try to do too when i'm directing something is that like you know like you really do want to let the actor bring their own personality to a character and their own um yeah, their own soul. To this the is character. why casting is far like yeah as important, if not even more important, than natural direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in in a sense, but I think I think like one of one of the most important things is that like you know that while it's important for the actor to bring their own soul to a character, like you need to talk to them about what that character is to the story, and like you know. No, I agree, but I feel I almost feel like if you're like a builder, the casting process is like, are you gonna lay like brick? A are you gonna yeah. use wood? Are you gonna like use sheet metal? You know, like okay. that's the the impact of choosing an actor, and then from there you you fit it in your vision, your construction, so to speak. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, but I would like to point out uh, an actor on here uh, because you know I pointed out that great guy um from oh shit uh sicario mm-hmm. the like a uh, second hand uh second in command guy to josh brolin he's also in guy Ritchie's new film he plays the guy that's the head of the crew for oh nice uh, the bank robbers <laughs> um he's amazing but yeah. there's another great guy in here i just want to point out that other people may not know by name but mm-hmm. it's definitely going to keep uh, especially if you're aspiring to make bigger films at one point that's uh david Dast Malt- Malchain or Malchine? Oh, the guy um, who played David, uh, uh, Coco. The corner, yes. Yeah. 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 He was great. He is the crazy guy in The Dark Knight that Harvey's like flipping a coin and, you know, saying he's going to shoot him if he doesn't give info. Right. <laughs> and he's the crazy guy in Prisoners as well with all the snakes. Right. Uh, right. He's just great. He's fucking great. He is. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, He's gonna be in Dune as well, apparently. So, oh, is he? He must. See? He must have a yeah. really good relationship with uh, Villeneuve. Yeah, three, yeah. three of his films. Yeah, um, which is interesting. I, I mean, have you ever seen 
we're talking about casting here. And I don't want to stay on this, but have you seen Mindhunter on Netflix? Yes, I have actually. Uh, for me, uh, more than any other reason, Mindhunter is the like textbook reason of why texting, uh, sorry, not texting, uh, casting can like ascend your your cinema to a, another level properly done. Because mm-hmm. um, there's so many bit players, yeah, that have in Mindhunter, but they're all so fucking good. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. So. No, for sure. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, we didn't really touch on Hans Zimmer too much, but um, I guess we forgot to show one of his songs, which is okay. Um, honestly, yeah. it, it's not like it's not super. At like, some point, we're going to have to remove all this music from our show as well <laughs> when we get a letter saying DMCA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it falls under. Because we're talking about the film. I mean, we could fair probably use. make an argument. I don't know yeah. if it falls under fair use, but uh, we're just flying under the radar right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no. I, I think if you haven't... Um, <laughs> actually, if you've listened to this whole thing and you haven't seen the film, like, bravo. Like, I have no idea how you got through it because... <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, this is just one of those films that like if you have seen it you know and you're you're just kind of like looking around and you were trying to find you know some people that could explain more of it to you um it it's one of those things where like i think this is very much worth going back and rewatching. um you know with with what with with the deeper meanings behind the film in mind you know um Mm -hmm it's such a beautiful film and it's forever going to be one of my favorites and I'll probably end up watching it once every few years or so, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's always a pleasure. Um, yeah. This is definitely um, one of those films where I'm actually going to get like the art book and everything. <laughs> you know how they do that for the big blockbusters. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, it's just, it's great. Uh, also another thing to point out to everyone, me and Nick just figured this out today, but apparently there are short films directed by Ridley Scott's son, uh, using the actual cast and settings and production design in this, in this film, probably done in the same production schedule. Uh, so I don't know where to find those. I assume there might be like uh, bonus content on like the Blu-ray or something, mm-hmm. but for anyone that wants more, that's a place to look. So, yeah. Um, Jeez. Oh, who was the uh who is the uh actress for um the daughter, Harrison Ford's daughter? Oh yeah, she was great as well. Uh let's see. Uh Haim Abbas is the Queen Bee. Okay. Carla Jury. Yeah, uh Carla Jury. Okay. French by the look of it. Yeah, yeah. No, Swiss. Swiss. Swiss? Okay. But so, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but being Swiss is essentially just being like French, German, or Italian. I that, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, she was she was amazing. She was just a small part, but you know, everything that she needed to be. Um, I guess. Um, oh, uh, one final thing that I kind of want to end on, which like. You know, okay. so, sorry for no grand climactic finish. We could have saved the insight for the end, but I felt like it was time when we <laughs> when we talked about it. But uh, 
Um, the uh, what's it called? Um, the CG on Rachel when Wallace brings her back out is crazy good. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Oh when, yeah. You know, when when Harrison Ford or when Deckard's in there, and, Harrison uh, Ford's lover. Yeah. yeah. Has the whole the, the love's eyes. predecessor in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, her eyes were green. Type mm-hmm. thing. Uh, well, she wasn't her, his. So she was made by Tyrell, who is the yeah, who's the dude before the blackout. And that's what. Uh, but love has the same uh, style, an updated version of her exact same style. Sure. Yeah. But um, um and role, frankly. Um. Even well, though love is a yeah. more distorted person, <laughs> so. <laughs> And uh, I think, I think like, yeah, because, because like he, Wallace seems like kind of obsessed with Tyrell, right? Where like he wants, mm-hmm. he wants to achieve what he did, but which is kind of funny. Cause like when you look at Tyrell, it, he wasn't as like, uh, presumptuous, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. megalomaniacal, I guess, you know, where, where like you have, uh, Wallace being like. Like he, he literally views himself as a God, you know, and he's so, uh, yeah, he's inhuman. You know, he's yeah. one of the, he's like the exact contrast, a human who's not human. I mean, even his eyes are dead and that that's like the classic thing that gives people humanity in film. Right. 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 That everyone talks about his eyes are literally, you know, they look like you're looking at a 15 year old dog when you mm-hmm. look at his eyes. So but it's crazy. This is a small um, cast, actually, now that I'm looking that, at it. That scene, yeah, it's very small. And that scene also, just, uh, I know we talked about it briefly, but that is one of the better scenes. The scene where he has Harrison Ford in his his luxury uh, work spot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the wood floating on the water. Yeah. Um, the, the you know, an abundance rotating. of these sort of organic resources that don't seem to be, you know, because remember, like, uh, Agent K is taking a shower in 99.9% filtered water. Right. You know? <laughs> Detoxified. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, detoxified water. Um, Jeez. And, you know, that's another thing to talk about. Like, they have lost technology because remember, as we talked earlier, they went through a, like a series of cataclysms like that they were talking about. Like there was the blackout and Vegas got nuked. Right. You know, they, they referred to Vegas getting nuked and they couldn't farm anymore and they lost all the trees you know it's just total trash planet so right and i always love that that's a huge uh i guess trope what or it might be what your um uh function mm. genre function i don't know whatever you would classify it as but i always love in sci-fi and sometimes even in fantasy when there is lost knowledge that has to be recovered mm-hmm. that's a that's a that's a thing that i've always enjoyed um, where we we're in a period of decline and we must come out of decline by we're trying to regain the golden age, so to speak. Right. Right. Uh, that's like a, that's a generality, a big generality. And this one it's expressed as, you know, uh, they were, you know, they knew how to make these synthetic humans uh, that can make children and we can't. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like how that's, um, you know, that's, uh, that's another argument that's sort of rejected frankly is that what makes us human is having children or, or something frankly. yeah yeah because um, that's another connection argument frankly it's just it's something that can be included in the connection thing yeah well and but like, sacrificing for that baby right would make you human right right so um but the uh what's it called actually it would be i think he'd more sacrificed for harrison ford for deckard yeah 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 but like 
the mother obviously sacrificed for the baby and I, you right, know, right. and Harrison Ford did as well. And we don't know if he's a replicant or not, but like, like sacrifice in general, I'm not saying that agent K sacrificed for the baby, but remember like the, the insights, you know, yeah, sacrifice yeah. in general. So, yeah, no, I just, I just love, I love that line when like, I love direct. Or... Yeah, what am I to you exactly? Um, you know, yeah. you know exactly where I was going. But, um, I I just love when like the unanswered question is like so important. You know, yeah. the, the answer to the unanswered question is so important. Um, I don't know. Um, Nolan does that really well. Villeneuve obviously does that yeah. really well. As we we talked about at the the very beginning, using a, a question rather than having your actual insight be a question, making it a question that provokes an actual insight, right? Uh, as opposed to just be like, "Whoa, yeah, just think about it," you know? Yeah, <laughs> you know. But the act of thinking about it is the thing that provokes the actual real insight, right? And and the answers throughout the rest of the movie, it's not like you know they just asked the question and left it at that. Which like exactly, I think a lot of a lot of bad art directors do, where they'll like end on a question or an uncertainty, but like the answer's not there, you know? Yeah, because um, they don't know. They're just <laughs> right, you know. Just, just being you know, a dick. Throwing shit out of their ass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> but yeah, anyways. Um, so Denis Villeneuve is coming out with um, Dune soon, as we've talked about, um, which I think yeah. is right up his alley. I think he's going to do amazing with that, um, which I know you haven't read Yeah, I, just, I literally just bought the book yeah. today, <laughs> so I'm going to read it. Yeah. It comes out October, so I'm so, excited. We'll I, have to, we'll do an episode that weekend, if, as long as we feel like we can. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, and I don't want to give you spoilers, so I don't want to talk it too much, talk about it too much, but yeah. I think that it's literally just so far up Villeneuve's alley and I'm so glad that he's the one that's doing it. Um, I think it's going to be one of the best adaptations to ever hit film. Um, and like, yeah, I know I'm putting a lot on it, but like Villeneuve has delivered nothing but masterpieces back to back to back. Yeah. And at this point, like I think it would be stupid not I, to. I feel it's it safe in. to be hyped. You can get hyped. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think it's safe to safe to. Yeah, do yeah. That. <laughs> it's um, safe to hype. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in in this age, well, of it usually isn't. Frankly, yeah. <laughs> you know, people shoot themselves in the foot. They'll have something that's actually pretty good, but they'll be disappointed. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of sad, yeah. but uh, with Villeneuve, it's you know, it's safe. Yeah, and oh, <laughs> to be uh, super some- excited. Something that I want to point out in Blade Runner that um, I love, I love when directors do this and I've talked about it in previous episodes, but I'll bring it up again. But um, this idea of the handshake between the director and the audience at the beginning, just kind of like a scene encapsulated that really, really uh, illustrates the technique, the the emotion, the uh, uh, treatment that you're going to be using throughout uh, throughout the film um, in one kind of like encapsulated scene at the beginning. And like, when you're in yeah. writing class, you learn about it as the hook, you know, um, mm-hmm. which is manipulative and just kind of less useful in yeah. my opinion. One dimensional. Yeah. Um, One dimensional way of thinking about it. Where like thinking about it as a handshake, you know, being like, okay, th- you have three minutes here at the very beginning to show your audience why they should be watching your movie. Right. Yeah. And what kind I of almost feel like it's making. like, like a, a short film almost. It's like yeah. the, the short film within the film. Right, right. And I feel like Denis Villeneuve does this in all of his films. Right. Agreed. Um, maybe save for the except. No, even Enemy. Even Enemy did that. 
Um, even prisoners, I would say. Even the, yeah, I think prisoners as well for sure. But I, I think it's such yeah. a wonderful technique for film, and it's something that like I think would be would be welcomed. I think if it was adopted into general Western filmmaking. Um. But, you know, rather than something like, oh, the hook or saving the cat or whatever the fuck you want to use, that's just total bullshit, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, very one dimensional way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I very much appreciated yeah, that. None of your storytelling should like feel like work, like groundwork you got to do in order to do the good stuff. It should all be the good stuff. Right. That's something you have to realize when making it. Right, you exactly. Know, if you're if you're not if you don't think it's the good stuff while you're making it, it's not the good stuff, and people <laughs> aren't going to enjoy it. Yeah. So just stop doing that. Definitely. Um, but cool. Well, you know, I think that's that's probably it. I think we should end it there. Um, we're going to be doing Snowpiercer uh, for our next episode. We're going to mm-hmm. attempt to find the director's cut that wasn't changed by uh, Weinstein. Um, we watched the Weinstein cut, the American cut, essentially. I think it's an amazing film. Mm-hmm. So if you want to watch ahead, you can, of course, watch the version that was released in America or make the attempt to find the director's cut either way. Uh, and that'll be our next episode. Um, otherwise, is there anything else that you want to leave us off on, Nick? Um, I mean, just that I know I know we've been gushing about Villeneuve for uh, over a few hours here, but... <laughs> Um, his whole filmography is fucking amazing. And like, if, if you mm. liked Blade Runner, you will like the rest of his films. Like they are just as detailed, just as deep, um, just as profound, like it's very, very intricate and, um, and, um, enjoyable watches. And like each one is its own experience. And honestly, you, you, he does have a, um, I would say he's fairly invisible stylistically, but like you, you, you can, you can feel it. Right. And you can, you can yeah. feel a Villeneuve movie when it's coming, but um, yeah, you can begin to perceive his voice. Yeah. Right. I'd say that maybe the one most similar to Blade Runner is Sicario. Um, mm. it, it, just in terms of, you know, insight and feeling um, definitely not style, but, <laughs> um, but it's uh, yeah, no, just, yeah, watch some Villanelle. Yeah, uh, watching Villanelle should be a similar statement as you know, watching Kubrick, watching Nolan, Absolutely. watching Hitchcock, watching Spielberg, watching Tarkovsky. Absolutely. It should be that it's up there. So watch Villanelle; it's worth it. I think I still have a few of his early films to watch, but I'm sort of saving them, frankly, similar to. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, once once you've watched it the first time, there's nothing like the first time. There just it, there just isn't. So, <laughs> um, all right. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, I'm gonna find something really good from Villeneuve about this film, and we're gonna play it here. Good luck with that, actually. Um, because so we'll see. I think he usually ends up talking about like the technical side of his film. You know, that's fine if he has something good to say. You know, it's Villeneuve, <laughs> so well, he's generally more interesting to listen to than a lot of directors. That's so. that's very fair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, here here that is. So we'll see you guys next time. Bye. See ya. One day the screenplay of, of Blade Runner arrived in front of me because the producer had done a previous movie with me, Prisoners, and, and uh, 
Alcon was looking for a director at the time. They had uh, they it was uh, Ridley Scott was supposed to direct it, but his calendar was uh, schedule was too busy, has too many movies in the same time. So they were looking for a director. And at, a, at first, I was really uh, destabilized and, and uh, deeply curious and, and uh, terrorized by the idea of reading the screenplay. I understood that uh, from the because of the thematics, what what the movie uh, was dealing with about uh, memory, about identity, quest of identity. It had a link with my previous work, and and um, uh, it made sense that uh, I could do this movie. I would I understand why they came to me, and I knew that technically I was able to do it. It's a movie I would have refused ten years ago, uh, no question. But. One day I, I read it and I said, I can do it, I know how to do this. I loved the, the first movie so much. It's a movie that uh, was part of my cinematic education. I was like raised with Blade Runner. It's a movie that was uh, by far one of my favorite movies of all time. So it's, I said, I don't want someone else to fuck this up. I mean, I, ne I need to. Even it's, a, it's like a, a suicidal mission, you know, it's like super risky. Everybody will hate me. I can be banned from the cinematic community from the rest of my life, but it worth the risk. Artis artistically, it's such a big challenge, but such a beautiful one. It's crazy idea to do that. Maybe a very bad idea, but I was mesmerized by the story of the screenplay, and I said yes. There was a lot of female parts, strong female characters, not like anything I've read before. There were more female characters in the movie than there's a male protagonist. And that I thought was really uh, faithful to the first movie that uh, had the same kind of quality. There was hints of the melancholia of the first movie too that uh, I thought was very important. They were there. There were the, the germs, the seeds for that, sorry. The seeds for that melancholia was, were in the screenplay and, and uh, that reassured me. In order to be very spontaneous, uh, spontaneous on set, you need to, for me, I need to, to, to be very prepared. And spe specifically with a movie of that scale, uh, everything will be designed, everything will be created. So, so the crew doesn't go uh, mad. You need to really be uh, precise. So you need to storyboard everything. I deeply love storyboarding. Uh, why? Because it allows me in a very quiet environment with good coffee and no pressure at all to dream about the movie alone, you know, to make the movie I want, the, 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 the ideal movie without bad weather, without producer on my back without actors that don't want to see their lines. I can do the movie I want once on paper. And I deeply love that process. I'm alone with a storyboard artist and I draw every frame and I dream about it. I deeply love that moment. In my first movies, uh, I thought that the storyboards were castrative and that they were like a, a something uh, that uh, will be uh, in your way as your film. But it's total opposite. I deeply love them now. And, uh, and uh, it doesn't mean that I will shoot the storyboards on, on set. Sometimes I just, Roger Deakins and I, we just throw them and say, okay, let's do something different because on the day there's some, a better idea on set. But most of the time, uh, it's a very powerful tool also to communicate for the crew. So yes, I storyboard everything. When you storyboard also, it's a, it's a way to transform the movie into images. And, and uh, I always, uh, it's a way to rewrite the screenplay in the way I want it. So it's a very, very important. Uh, moments in the film process. I'm very old-fashioned. I, 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 I don't like to work with several cameras. I work with a, one single camera. I like to commit to one point of view and, and uh, I, I don't like to make any compromise. When you look with several, you work with several camera, cameras in the obligation to according to make compromise with lenses and, that, and, and with lighting and that I can't.
So I like to commit to one thing and, and, and to just embrace that and fully commit. And so uh, I will say that technically, uh, I, uh, no matter the scale of the movie, uh, I, I work with one camera. I try to, uh, to adjust the language to each story, what, what the story will need. I must say that uh, for three or of my four last movies, I have the same kind of a language, cinematic language. There's a kind of research of, of uh, trying to be as simple and monolithic as possible that I deeply love. And, and uh, I, I'm hypnotized by the, this, this approach. I deeply love it. Right now, I feel the urge to do something different. But the, the, in the past five, the four or five movies, I was quite similar cinematic approach in some ways, yeah, I would say. I wanted to make a feature film before 30 years old. I was obsessed with this idea. And it was not a good thing. I should have uh, taken more of my time for the first one. I did not do a hurry that much. Take more of my time, live a little, read more books. <laughs>